This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to That's Bangin', the food and drink podcast of Ireland. Where we talk to some of the brightest culinary minds in the country, as well as people who are just passionate about their food and drink. You'll hear all about what it takes to get a Michelin star above the door, as well as tales of adventure around some of the best places on our wonderful island to eat and drink. All of this while we fill you in on the latest foodie happenings around the country and tell you what great bits we've been eating recently. In association with local fresh and tasty beer, Hop House 13, made with more hops, more taste and more character. And please remember to always drink responsibly. Hello, I'm Chris Mellon and welcome to the Connacht Hotel in Galway. We're on the road again and this time we are out west. Out west. Out west. Lovely. <laughs> this is an episode celebrating the Galway food scene and some of its stars. Marcus O'Leary, welcome to Galway. Oh, it's so good to be here. Do you know, we got the train. I haven't been out of Dublin in so long. I feel that I've just been freed. I feel like Dobby just been handed a sock. Freed Except it's Marcus and he's just been handed a load of food from Galway. So it's brilliant. Um, we I love did, this we did. We did just get handed a lot of food. We did. I love Galway. Just we, like hands down. I used to spend childhood summers here. In Crockwell, picking blackberries off a bush and hunting voles in trees. <laughs> did you really? So, yeah, I actually did, yeah. Oh, my God. Shout out to, uh, to the Crockwell contingent. Can we call you the vole hunter? We can call me the vole hunter, yeah. Um, also, went used to go fishing down by the cliffs. I caught my first pollock. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Galway. Well, there's a lot of, lot of coastline in Galway. I've, I say, I've, I've said it before, probably my favorite oysters in the country come from Kelly's. Absolutely fantastic. Amazing guys out there. You were actually shucking a few Kelly's oysters at Taste Dublin this I year? I was shucking a couple of Kelly's oysters. <laughs> I was shucking the, many, many, many with Kelly's De- oysters. With and Dad from King, C- King Citric. Absolutely. Rep, and I think that, you know, like when, I, when you have somewhere that's so proud of its seafood representing uh, a brilliant Galway product like Kelly, Kelly's oysters, then... It's got to be good. Yeah, yeah. You know, we usually start off talking on the show about uh, what we've eaten this week, but we've actually just came from a quite special lunch. Like, we, we, we had well too much to eat, probably. We could say, yeah, it'd be <laughs> fair to say that. It would be fair to say that. But we just came from Kai in Galway, and Kai, uh, like, owned by Jess Murphy. It's been around for donkey's years. It is absolutely fantastic. Uh, like, we, we just had, like, a venison and ricotta sausage roll oh, there was that was, the, like, the oh. size of my head. It was, like, insane. The salads, everything seasoned amazingly. Marcus, what else did we have? We had a, uh, some, some hake fish fingers, which, like, the menu in Kai changes a lot. The fish fingers are always there. It's always freshly, sustainably caught seafood. Just breaded perfectly. Everything is fried, but the fish is just flaking perfectly apart inside. It's perfectly seasoned, but the tartar sauce. Like, I'm mm. a sucker for a good tartar sauce has a bit of punch to it, mm. has like the texture of it's amazing. Mm. It's just like everything on that plate was mm. just perfect. The also, sauces in general, because the rose hip uh, ketchup that came with the sauce draw was like, four. Oh. Also, shout out to the bread. I just want to, I want to be friends with <laughs> I, that yeah, bread. I love the way every, t- every plate we got came with like two slices of big Whopper bread. <laughs> but also just like, you can really tell how much thought has gone into every single individual element mm. of, of, of everything that's on the plate. Like everything is perfectly seasoned. Everything's perfectly dressed. Every individual thing works in harmony, yeah. but is individually perfect. It's just yeah. There's di- different salads place. on every plate. Though, like the the fish fingers had this kind of Waldorfy salad with the apple and kind of like uh, nuts. Bit it was walnut, beautiful, bit of celery, absolutely gorgeous. Like you know, then there was like uh, what else? There was? What else, there was? What else there was? Oh, we oh, had yeah. a, the, oh the, the the turf cutters plate. Turf I think cutters plate. The, <laughs> the, the Galway City version of a plowman's. We had some beautiful local ham. We had some cheese. We had a perfect egg. I'm guessing like. 
a seven minute egg. Yeah. Just sprinkled with a little a little bit of crunch. There was some uh, wonderful <laughs> crispy focaccia. There was like it was there was more just like your brown soda kind of t- like not brown soda. What would you call that bread, Marcus? Oh, just um well listen, I've, I've, I will revert to our resident uh, our resident baker shortly, but um, <laughs> do you know, it's just like it's food that's generous and very obviously made by people who care about it. And I think that's that's emblematic of uh, of the Galway food scene is that the people who are cooking here and producing things here really give a damn about what they're doing. There's nothing just kind of haphazardly thrown on a plate. It's just like the, it's, people are so proud to come from here. Yeah. The produce is amazing and that really shows. Absolutely, absolutely. And it shows nowhere better than, than, than in Kai, which is uh, which also won a Michelin Green Star this year and it also it's held its bib come on now for a while. But uh, that's the brilliant Jess Murphy at the helm. And Jess was supposed to be chatting to us today, but unfortunately she was called away last minute. But that's not to worry because we still have two of Galway's finest with us today. Uh, The brilliant JP McMahon will be joining us later on in the episode. But first up, our guest is a pastry chef turned entrepreneur. Eurotalk's Young Chef of the Year in 2019. She has worked in some of the best restaurants in the country and in 2020 founded Graw Chocolates in her hometown of Kilcreast. Is it Kilcreast? Kilcreast. 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 Oh, okay, we got it right. I, I was okay. meant to ask you before I'd done the intro. <laughs> yeah, we got it. Ireland's Queen Chocolatier, Grania Mullins. Welcome to That's Banging. Thank you so much. It's <laughs> nice to be here. Grania, it's such a pleasure to have you. How are you? I'm good. I'm great. It's uh, it's wonderful to find because we, we met at Taste of Dublin. We, we've both been following what you've been doing for so long. If, if anybody who's listening to this isn't following uh, following Grania on Instagram, I really suggest that you take out your phones right now and just look at the sheer beauty mm. of what you're doing. It's just unbelievable. It's amazing to see. Yeah, it's chocolate theater. You know, that's what it is. It's it's beauty. It's it's something really special. I suppose, like, how are you, Grania? And, like, I, I know you're, you're you're starting to get really, really rushed now. Like, you're, like, chocolate means Christmas to a lot of people. So you have that Christmas kind of ramping up loads going on at the moment. Absolutely. So we just started our Christmas production, which means it's full steams ahead from now until the end of Easter, really. So mm. we really don't stop. Um, so, yeah, just, just trying to get all our Christmas products. We launched them last week, so you can pre-order them already because last year we sold out so quickly. Really, yeah. Yeah, because it was our first ever Christmas. I had no idea how much we were going to sell. I just guessing and we sold out i think uh, the first week in november for the entire christmas wow wow so we're, the aim is for that not to happen this year so we can get some to everyone and has your team grown quite substantially in the 12 months like since then it has so it, up until november last year it was just me and roping in as many of my family <laughs> as i could <laughs> which they did um but now i have there's five of us um that are employed by Grot chocolates and as soon as we move to a new location which i'm desperately on the hunt for we we will be expanding and growing our team even further, which um, is very exciting. Am I right to say that you're still working out of like your family home? Like, yes. uh, does I believe you have like some sort of production side out, out the back or something like that? Absolutely. So um, we have a little kiln um, that was just left for storage and uh, just when I was starting off Grot Chocolates I kind of mentioned it to my parents and they're like oh no Grania like you can't set up your business from here and I was like please <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I first started the kitchen counter so once they were sick of me on the kitchen counter then they were like okay go on we'll get you out mm. so but at the start so we launched on the 24th of July in 2020 so right in the middle of COVID lockdown and for me, it was really just a project to keep me sane yeah. because I missed restaurants. I missed doing things. I needed to be busy. So at first it was just creating a business plan out of wanting to give myself some routine to my day. Yeah. And then from there, we started on the kitchen counter, got it all HSE certified, got everyone in, got everything done. And we launched, we sold out in eight minutes. Our site crashed. What? what? Yes. <laughs> eight minutes on our eight first night. Eight minutes? Yes. 
Wow. That's insane. Yeah. Okay. It was crazy. So it was uh, from the get go. It was like wow because I the day before I'd gone for a walk with my mom and I was like, what if nobody <laughs> buys? And she was like, and what have you lost? Only the price of a website. And I was like, true. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'll yeah. Just yeah. Do it. I'll do a it. A website that clearly wasn't uh, wasn't enough to handle the volume <laughs> yeah, of traffic. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'd mentioned it beforehand. I was like, I really don't want it to crash. And they're like, No, it's a brand new website. Like, you're not going to get any traffic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> did you Did you ever have like kind of the ambition to do something with chocolate before? Like when you so you've worked in some amazing kitchens around around France, around Ireland. Like, did you have like the passion about chocolate to kind of do something along that, or, or was it like the pandemic that kind of pushed you into that? So I always loved working with chocolate. I love how scientific it is. So I actually studied science in college. Mm. So. So it's very scientific. You follow the rules, you get the result, just like old pastry as well. I yeah, suppose. yeah. If you follow the recipe, it this, turns this out is right. like, uh, as far as I'm concerned, pastry is some kind of black magic. Like I've always, <laughs> I uh, much like yourself, I, like don't have a formal kind of culinary education and everything like that. It's like, it's very much. I'm, you know, kind of flouncing around the kitchen, being like, just a little flourish of cumin and a little <laughs> pizzazz of of duca and mm, what's this? A little mm, of lemon juice. Like it's uh, whereas like. Like for whatever reason, just mathematically, I look at patissiers and bakers and chocolatiers, and I'm just like, how do you do it? And like the honest answer is like, we we read from a page (laughs) and we don't deviate. And I'm like, yeah, but how do you do that? How do you not deviate? (laughs) What (laughs) about a sprinkle of this? Yeah, that's the part that I really like. So I like to follow something to get the right result and I love teaching that to somebody else as well so if there's somebody else underneath me and I'm showing them how to be done you just kind of inspire them that if you follow it you can follow the results Mm. and also also really interesting can you get to a stage where you know your recipe is inside out Mm. and if something goes wrong you can look at it and say why before you even have to go back on the recipe because Mm. you get so used to how your ingredients work it's so chemically orientated it's so interesting it's yeah it's it works <laughs> when you follow the recipe. So obviously, um, Grot Chocolates kind of came from a pivot mid uh, mid Panny D. Um, to kind of rewind a little bit, um, for people who don't know you, where did it all start? Because you, you've like, okay, I, we did a bit of research. You love food all your life. And then, you, as you said, you went and did science. Is that right? Absolutely. So I, as a kid, I always loved food. My mom was, always used to let me help out in the kitchen. So I used to get my hands dirty. I actually used to do this thing where... If there was no sweets in the house and I'd wake up on a Saturday morning, before anyone would wake up, I'd have a batch of meringues ready and in the oven, so I'd have a treat. What age were you? This is probably when I was like 10, oh. maybe a little bit younger. You're, and you're making meringues. Where, where can I get a child who does that? <laughs> <laughs> That's unbelievable. Yeah, right. so like I was just grew up being allowed to play in the kitchen, really, and mm. to discover uh, we have our own chickens, we have our own garden. So it was always good food around yeah. us. And I never saw, I never knew any different. So when I went to school, like I'd, some people would say I had weird sandwiches, but I was like, I really like these. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, what's weird about pepper salami when what? you're five years old? Yeah, I think yeah. people, yeah, you know, I think people can be, children can be so cruel. <laughs> so just, just to give a little, where exactly is Kilcreast in, uh, in Galway? It's in East Galway, so it's between Gort and Loch Grey. And okay. It's a small little parish, um, quite small, but it, it's quite a good, great things coming out of it as well. Yeah. And would there have been, like, you said you grew up with chickens, would there be, like, you kind of buying stuff off the local farmers, local dairy, local everything? Yes, yeah, so my parents always loved going to the markets as well, so we'd always pop into the markets. There was a great one that used to bring us to in Gort, and then into Galway as well. And I used to always love that, the best days when we used to get to the markets and we used to come home with all our treats, whether they were olives and cheeses oh, and yeah. all nice things that were just coming to us. And they then things coming out of the gardens, if we were making dinner, we'd run up to the garden, more so during the summer months, obviously. Yeah. But we'd go up to the garden and we'd pick the veggies, bring them back down, or the apples, we'd do the same. We'd pick the apples or the blackcurrants 
and we'd make jam out of them or cordial. So it was yeah. just so normal to me from a very, very young age. And I loved that. And then, where, so you kind of kept that going. Did you have that thing that, Chris, we've talked about this before, of kind of being in school and having something that you love, like cooking and going, oh, no, I couldn't do that. I couldn't make a career out <laughs> of that. Like, did what made you kind of go, okay, I'm going to do science instead of, uh, instead of following food? Yeah, so I was always very academic as well. So mm. I did love school. Um, I really enjoyed it. So learning things off, it was never really a problem. It was just, it was something I enjoyed as well. So the science side of things was always a fascination mm. for me. And then I came to wanting to choose for leaving, for my leaving cert for my CAO. And I had my level fives and my level sixes. And I decided to put... Uh, nutrition down is number one um and then on my number one on my level fives i put down culinary arts and i didn't get nutrition but i got science and i was like i want to go and i'm going to go the back road and get nutrition i wasn't going to be a a nutritionist or a dietitian okay and i probably chose wrong because i went in i said i do the science um it was a really hard decision, I remember as well, mm. because a lot of people telling me, oh, go to a university. You need to get a university. That's most important. It was yeah. such a, it's it such really a big isn't. thing. You know, yeah. yeah. Thing, like, go and get the biggest point or the biggest course you can get with your points. Absolutely. As yeah. opposed to like, do you like this thing? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So there was, there was that challenge. And so I said I'd go for my science, but the science course I ended up choosing didn't really have much nutrition. So in the chemistry, I believe, was it? Yeah, I did biochemistry, chemistry, and microbiology. So (laughs) yeah, very different. But it all relates back to cooking, I have to say, in the end. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I was doing I did two years of it and then I was working in Ashford Castle at the time. Loved it. Like I would spend I was nearly working full time hours in my weekend. Yeah. Just so I could just be there. Yeah. Loved every moment of it. And then I was And were you working sp- in, in pastry? pastry? In pastry, yeah. Okay. So it was the first full-time pastry kitchen I'd got. Saying that, I, I should say that I was working in kitchens from when I was 16. So in transition year, I got my first job. And so you like, you're a fair, you're a go-getter. Like, it's kind of like... There's and was it, was it always pastry, never hot kitchen? Um, so in when I first started, I said, I don't want to be stuck in pastry because I'm a girl. Yeah. I don't want that. <laughs> but then I realized that like when I was in pastry, that it's I what just, passionate for. It's what I was passionate because mm. I love to follow the method. If you can tell me how to do something, mm. I want to know how to do it and I'll yeah. do it. Yeah. If you just tell me, oh, just put a bit of that, this and a bit of that. It's like, what's I'll a bit? be like, oh, what? <laughs> what do I do with that? That doesn't mean anything to me. So it was probably the calculation of it. And then it was just, just realized that that was my real passion. So then when I, two years of science done and I was like, oh, I really don't enjoy it. But what I was really loving was that weekends or after work when I get to go to work. That was what really excited me. Yeah. So I spoke to my parents about it and they were like, how about take a year out? Go and see if, if, if what you want to do. I was like, yeah, OK, I'm going to do that. And I got a job in a Michelin star restaurant down the south of France. Okay. So I booked a ticket <laughs> and I left and yeah. that, that's what I did. I didn't speak a word of French. I arrived there. I had the most amazing head chef, uh, Dan Basuto. He is such a talent and he really allowed me to be me and discover my, my pastry talent as what's well. The, what's the name of the restaurant? Dan B. La Table de Ventabran. Okay. Okay. So and that's in Aix-en-Provence. Just outside. Yeah. So it's in a little village called Ventabran. Okay. Um, really, really nice place. Stunning. I would recommend anyone if they're going to South France. So Galway girl going in there, not a word of French, straight into the pastry kitchen. Straight in. That's just like... The, the, like the, just the amount of gumption that takes for anyone yeah. to do. Were you nervous? Like, oh, t- I, I don't think I was really before I went. And then I remember it was a Wednesday evening. I 
probably just done about five days. I rang my mom and I was like, I'm going home. <laughs> I don't want to be here. Like, I don't understand anything they're saying to me. And she just said, well, Grania, you, um, I'm not paying for your ticket home. So you have to wait for your first paycheck. Right. So I'll see you, uh, come back to me in a month. What, yeah. what, a, what a mom move. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just being like, you got yourself into this mess. Now get out of it. Yeah. Exactly. But I'm so glad she did too, because I could have ran away from it, but I didn't. I stuck yeah. with it. And I remember my mission every day was that I would hear how many people we had for lunch and dinner. Because they used to come in and say how many covers there were. And yeah. I, I could never get it right. <laughs> <laughs> the only way for me to know how many people there were for lunch was to listen to this one girl. And eventually, I was able to Oh, because she, oh, she was speaking French, of course. Yeah, yeah, French, yeah. And otherwise, I didn't know how much to prepare for, mm. or how much of anything to defrost or to make. Or... Wow. So, so I suppose going into a Michelin star kitchen, like in France like that, that was doing lunch and dinner, like your hours were insane as well. Like, so as a pastry chef, you're making like butters, breads, like, and then every cakes and everything else as well. Absolutely. So we're starting about eight o'clock in the morning. We would have a split shift if the lunch service didn't go over. So we'd have maybe a split shift, maybe an hour to two, yeah. but sometimes it couldn't, Might you might not get any split shift whatsoever. And then you'd be back in till close to midnight, one o'clock. So you were working all day, every day. Wow, yeah. really that, dropped that into was it. That summertime though. But then like, I think what was really amazing was my head chef recognized that we worked so hard in the summer. So we calculated up all our hours. We had a clock in, clock out system and he gave them back to us in the winter. So every second week I would be off from Sunday to Friday. What? Oh, wow. oh my God, that's yeah. unbelievable. So I used to head off to Rome for a few days by myself <laughs> or do this, that and the other. So it was a really great place to work because then you were working so hard and you didn't mind it because you knew you had something to look forward that's to. That's amazing. Mm. That's so really you, such an incentive for like, you know, to keep your staff happy and like just to keep a really good working environment. Definitely. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, really. I, I was so impressed by how he did it because I hadn't had that before. Yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, did you figure out the French? Did you kind of? I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was actually, I didn't have any friends that spoke English. My head chef spoke English, but he tended to speak to French to me because everyone yeah. else in the kitchen. Mm. So I had no choice, really. That's what yeah. I had to say. And I it. suppose you didn't have time to go take lessons either. Like, there was know? no time for lessons. <laughs> I literally had to be thrown in there and start learning words. And there were some things that I knew the word in French, but I almost didn't even know the translation to it. So I just used to learn it. And then maybe it might be four months down the line. Yeah, and be yeah, like, yeah. Oh, now I know the translation <laughs> yeah. for that word. Now I know what we're talking about. <laughs> One of the first words I learned was veau. Veal. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Like they had a veal carpaccio on. And I just used to hear veau all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how you learn too. So it was... Uh, uh, yeah, you submerse yourself. Yeah, yeah. on the Absolutely. spot and on the job. Yeah. Yeah. And I know like by the time I was leaving, I was there for a full two years. I was pretty much fluent. Um, there was hardly a word that I wouldn't understand. Even I was only back there uh, two weeks ago. And again, I was able to understand absolutely everything. So it was the best way I could have learned yeah. French. I think it's, a, it's an amazing thing, first of all, to show up somewhere without a language and literally go into one of the most high pressure environments that you can be thrown into, mm. where kind of communication is everything. Yeah. And just like that's a real sink or swim kind of thing. And to swim in there and not only thrive, but go from vo to everything, you know, is is savage. The thing, like, I, the thing I find quite insane is like, you know, obviously listening to people and trying to understand them is hard. But then when you have to try communicate with them and you haven't got the language, so then like people can get frustrated. I imagine very quickly because like you know you're you're just you're not saying words. You're kind of uh, 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 like, and that can be like another thing that you have to kind of get over the barrier for straight away. So true. So there was times when like I would start to understand because obviously you start to understand before you can speak the full language mm -hmm. properly. 
and I'd try and reply, but I couldn't reply in all the words that I wanted to use. Yeah. So I used to get so frustrated that nobody ever really understood what I wanted <laughs> yeah. to say, or they wouldn't get the full emotion, yeah. or they wouldn't get this one particular word that I wanted to use. So it was frustrating, but it also pushed me to learn because yeah. I didn't want to not be able to say my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And out of out of curiosity, did any of the chefs in that restaurant, had they ever been to the West of Ireland? Had they ever been to Galway? No. Or did they know anything about what was kind of coming out of Ireland food-wise at the time? No, there was this running joke that... <laughs> Ireland didn't have any good food and I used to get so stubborn about it so every time I would have the chance to come home I would Mm. come back with cheese and dried meats and all these things and give them to them and they'd be like this isn't this isn't Irish it's French and I was like no this is Irish (laughs) this is actually down the road everything about this I was really kind of stubborn and wanted Mm. to show them that we also have an amazing food culture. Yeah. And Coming you, back you with can't two just... pounds of Doris. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember I got St. Tola and they were like, it's like the French stuff. And I was like, no, it's no, Irish. No, no, no it's, a, it's Irish. It's apparently Irish. Um, and how did it feel kind of coming back from, because uh, Aix-en-Provence, like, if, if, like it is, we were just talking before we started recording about how abundantly, like almost sensory overload beautiful it is. Like you wake up every morning and there's just like this incredible smell in the air from everything from fruit trees to lavender. The sun almost has like a texture to it. Mm. Like how did it feel kind of coming back to um, coming back to Galway, which is like the wettest place in the world uh, for one thing. Like anywhere that makes Edinburgh look dry is is incredible. Like, did just, you, sorry. Yeah, just kind of coming back and suddenly like kind of with that experience how how did it feel to be to be thrust back into the motherland so i will say i felt like i was lied to because i moved back thinking i missed ireland and everything and i moved back in that heat wave summer that we had oh and i was living down in y'all and i was working in the cliff house oh lovely but i was for six months it rained one morning. Your paradise. And, you know, one yeah. morning. And I was like, what was I thinking that it rained in Ireland all the time? <laughs> and then the winter came and it started to rain and rain and rain. It just didn't stop. <laughs> it didn't stop. So, so at first, I think the, the world tried to convince me that Ireland wasn't as wet and it was all in my imagination. And then... But we just yeah. had a really dry September, like you know, it's it's we just don't know anymore, you know, and kind of, you just don't know anymore. But yeah, no, that's they definitely lied to you when you came back and you were just like, oh my god, this is, or I'm still in Aix en Provence. <laughs> yeah, that's what it felt like to be honest. You have to sunbathe, go to the beach, and all sorts. But, it uh, is, yeah, it's a very different, uh, very different setup, isn't it? <laughs> very different, but it was amazing. Like even leaving France and having like walking out my my studio door of where I was living. And having grapevines above my door with grapes dripping from yeah. them, you can eat it. And then walking you didn't out have them in y'all. Didn't have them in y'all. <laughs> but the peaches and Athens and all sorts. But it, that was the part that I probably missed. That yeah. is, yeah. It, it is something like I remember. Picturesque. Yeah, mm. I have some family down around that part of France, and like literally at the end of dinner. Somebody just going, just go pick something off a tree. I was like, yeah. sorry, what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You were saying about peaches and stuff like that. Yeah, like, yeah. And Incredible. like we talked about this before. Like you know, like the peaches that we probably get in Ireland. You know, they're they're, they're never going to be the same as when you're plucking a peach off a tree in like somewhere like that. Like you oh, know, it's so different. It's, it's, it's completely it's just different. So like a lot of Irish fruit and veg. Just like now, there's some amazing producers doing stuff. But like you go into your your big name supermarkets mm. and you take your average tomato off a shelf. And you'd, I'd rather be punched in the face really <laughs> like know. significantly hard than yeah. eat one of those. They're so just... true. Like in France, I couldn't believe it. When um, kids used to come into the restaurant, we had a kid's menu. The first starter for the kid's menu was a tomato salad. Yeah. Just tomatoes with a tomato sorbet and basil. It was beautiful. 
But if you put that on a menu in Ireland, no kid would eat it because no. the tomatoes they know is not like that. Like kids in France know how delicious they are. They know how sweet they are. And they love a tomato because they're like, how could this be a vegetable almost? Because yeah. mm. how delicious it is. So to kind of bring it back to Galway, because this is the Galway special. This is the Galway special. <laughs> what, like, obviously, do you know what? It's, it's, I think it's very obvious and easy to look at a place that has like grapes growing out of the sky and tomatoes that taste like <laughs> just heaven. Like, what is, like, what's the equivalent here? Because I mean, it, it is, we have a very different food culture. And now we have this amazing generation uh, of chefs like yourself kind of coming up and championing where they come from. So when you're, when you're making your chocolates or anything, are you looking at your local area and taking the best of that and channeling that into what you do? Yeah, that's completely what I aim to do. So when I came back, I was really, I was stubborn because the French tried to tell me we don't have good food culture. So I was like, I'm going to show everyone how good our food is. So I tried to pull, tried to get to know producers, try to use the best of in-season produce, mm -hmm. which was, it is a challenge sometimes in pastry because you hit October and there's no more fruits. Yeah, no more fruits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you might have apples, but there's only so much apples you can put into everything as well. Yeah. So it's a challenge. But it's also a really good challenge because then you start thinking of like sweet vegetables and carrots. Yeah. And even I did a dessert on celery that is so stunning. But it's about figuring out kind of the flavor profiles yeah. Yeah. and yeah. bringing that out. So, um, yeah, I definitely now with my chocolates, I'm trying to do that as well as trying to use really really amazing irish producers even just this morning i was collecting the blossom heron award because we just got oh, seen that. congratulations yeah. congratulations that's amazing but what was also great about it was that i was meeting other galway producers that Absolutely. were there that are championing that, yeah. what they're doing so the likes of leahy honey and all like everything we've such amazing products around and i love to be able to give them a shout out as well because not everyone is familiar with them yeah so who, who sorry just so just to give them a shout out so who else was uh, collecting the blossom heron award this morning we had the the taste of Athen Rye. yeah stuff with their smoked onion mayo which I think oh, everyone has yeah. a staple oh, so God. good do you know what like, you, like you've both met Rachel my girlfriend she her, she just loves mayonnaise and like genuinely <laughs> Irish I, people just love mayonnaise I had a taste of this recently <laughs> and I've been meaning to get her a jar it is unbelievable so yeah. good so, <laughs> so, but I met him today I was like you're always in my fridge <laughs> <laughs> hi Grania nice to meet you yeah. Yeah. it's a very uh, Hannibal Lecter thing to say right there <laughs> you're um, going to be so good like just fantastic things coming out of Galway and mm. it's really great to be able to connect with them and they're also supportive as well so I know quite a lot of producers around and they've no problem giving us me advice when I was setting up yeah absolutely it's very different than working in a kitchen as well trying to be a producer mm. oh definitely yeah um, and I suppose one thing that as a chocolatier as a chocolatier I don't know if that's the French word but um, <laughs> it just sounded right um, <laughs> We, we have. You just said it in a French accent. That's a, <laughs> listen, that's. And I suppose. Yeah, I my don't know if that's the French word. That, no, that's just a my, French accent. My, fr my friend, my French credentials carried me through. Um, you're actually, fr oh, actually you speak French. French as well. No, yeah, I speak French. It's a chocolat. You are French. Une chocolatrice. Vous. Uh, um, what was I going to say? We like one, one thing that we really, I think, take for granted in Ireland is the quality of our dairy. Yes, yeah. we um, have fantastic dairy. So so good. Even um, I was working with Kyle Moore um, Cheese, Teresa Roach. Yeah. Okay, yeah. She's amazing. But I went to her and I was like, by any chance, could I have some of your cream? She's like, we don't make cream, but we'll try and make it just for you. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah, let's let's do it. Let's try. And she did. She made us the cream and like the flavor of it. Yeah, really. Unpasteurized cream yeah. making our ganaches. Like amazing. you can't beat that. Where? How could you beat that? Oh, fab. It, like it doesn't, it doesn't get better 
than that like that's oh like we used to go and collect from a wednesday like mm-hmm. she'd have it ready on a wednesday i'd go and meet her she'd talk too much and we'd have the laugh <laughs> and i'd always get distracted from what i really had to do but yeah. it was just brilliant because she'd bring you into the back where her cheese was aging and yeah. that smell yeah it's oh. like sweet if you don't oh. think it's going to be sweet but the milk is so sweet that the smell coming off the cheese is sweet yeah. are it's you a- loving that side of the business like where you're going around you're meeting these people now so like you said you're lo- you go into someone you're like oh can we get some cream for your ganache and then like you know you're meeting other people i'm sure like there's lots, lots of different things that, to do with the business that you're making purely chocolate so like i'm sure you're, you're loving that kind of thing meeting all these people completely and getting new ideas as well so even jess said to me over the summer jess from kai she was like Grania, I have somebody that, that grows wild strawberries. Yeah. She's, she's like, no restaurant in Galway is open at the moment. Why don't you use them? And I was like, give me the contact. Yeah. So we made like a wild strawberry giant chocolate heart. Oh and that my was, God. We, we took the wild strawberries. We like dust, tossed them in citric acid and sugar and dried them down. So they were like chewy wine gums oh. that are wild <laughs> strawberries. Unbelievable. So delicious. So good. That sounds insane but you know i suppose and as of this morning when the the world's top 50 restaurants got announced and like you know noma being number one and that whole scandinavian philosophy of kind of like when you look at scandinavia especially like the likes of denmark they're not exactly the most abundant fruit growing countries ever you know and like i think when you look at ireland when you look at that kind of crossover of finding how like finding what you have and like like really championing that and not being like oh we've got Fijian mangoes yeah, coming in for yeah. it's like yeah yeah there's so much great stuff here it's a matter of just like finding the, you know just to discover 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 it's really fantastic you know and becoming familiar with the flavors as well because sometimes we might have something that tastes quite similar but it might not be the same fruit but you can get the same essence and just mm. even I think foraging is really fantastic I love to do a bit of that um, my mom actually as a kid I, she, I used to be like you're so uncool mom <laughs> she used to be walking around being like and that is that herb and that's that herb mm, yeah. and that's that flower and that's that mm. plant JP's and, all about the foraging as absolutely. well isn't he yeah yeah. But I didn't realize how important it would end up being in my life when mm. I was like, Mom, stop. <laughs> but I think, I think it's yeah. incredible to kind of pass that down, you know? And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is like incredible, like even just down to recognizing seaweeds or knowing plants when I was out in the wild. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's, it, like mm. so important. I was even to na- mm. able to know the names of them and then I could research and see were they edible or not. Well, so, that's that's really good because most people like, oh, I, I, you know, I can name a few herbs by the smell or I walk past them and point at them yeah. and I think I'm deadly. <laughs> but like, you know, <laughs> you, except you can you realize you're in Tesco and it literally says flat leaf parsley on the back. <laughs> I, I have a rosemary bush at home. <laughs> but uh, yeah, actually, your back garden is, is wild with a lot of different stuff. I have a lot of herbs in my You've got a lot of sage yeah. and stuff. Mint, well, mint is actually just sage. takes out everything. But, yeah, uh, mint, like, it, it, I, I don't think there's a garden in Ireland that doesn't have a bit of mint in it. Like, yeah, just yeah, yeah, like, yeah. self-seeds, it's just, it's eternal. Mm, mm. Yeah, um, But that's quite impressive. That's, that's, that's going up a level if you can name different seaweeds and name different like flowers and all, like you said, looking at that's That's really, I suppose that that's something amazing. And you're very lucky, I suppose, to kind of grow up like that where you're going to, you had that upbringing. It's, mm. Do you know, Ireland, obviously, do you know Ireland is one of the biggest seaweed exporters yeah, in really, the world? Yeah. Do you ever incorporate seaweed into your chocolate? We will be one coming Ooh. very soon. Okay. Um, which is coming out with our Beyond the Menu box, which is okay. very cool. Oh, cool. Uh, of course, you just yeah. did Beyond the Menu. Yeah, with, with Mark with, Moriarty. With yes. our, one, of our, one of our favorite guests, Mark Moriarty. Great, yeah. great dude. Um, so, yeah, what, what were you kind of looking at there? So we, well, he came down. That was unbelievable few days that we did filming with him, which we had so much fun. But he always does a pop-up for the show. Yeah. And we were like, how do we do a pop-up when we don't have a restaurant? So we had a little struggle on how what we were going to do. And he's like, would a pop-up box of chocolates be possible? And I was like, absolutely. He's like, are you sure? And I was like, 
Yeah, let's do it. Definitely. Yeah. So the six chefs in the series, we kind of, between the two of us, we know all the chefs mm. quite well as well. So we were like, let's inspire a flavor of I've seen this. I've seen this. Yeah. Out. No way. Yes. Yeah, so the pattern on the chocolate is kind of like the colors that we think represent those chefs and the fillings inside also represent the isn't chefs. Isn't that really amazing? <laughs> That's amazing. And do the chefs know this is coming? They know it's coming. So they didn't at first. And then we did a little, um, we did a little pre-launch back yeah. when we were recording. And yeah, so they ha- nobody's tasted them yet except for me and Mark. So we I, had ooh. fun. Yeah. You know, I, I love that idea of kind of like, I'm going to make something that reminds me of you. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's that's, so personal. Like, you know, and it's quite intimate. That, but that's, I think, you know what, like more than so many other foods, like chocolate, when you think about it, chocolate is, it's a treat. It's comfort. Mm. There's like an intimacy in chocolate. You know, it's something Absolutely. you give someone... And like doing something like that, it's something you can't do with a lamb chop. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like you, <laughs> six different lamb chops. Yeah, just, but like just mint them. I mean, you, you can kind of, you can kind of, you know, you can cook something for something, but something like something mm. as delicate as just one, a one bite mm. chocolate. Yeah. So, Grania, if you were to make a chocolate about yourself, what would color would it be, and what would be the center? Well, it had to be pink okay. because mm. I do love to wear. A pop of pink. Oh, yeah. And then I was stuck with the flavor. Do you know what? I actually found it easier picking everyone else. And then my dad came in to myself and Mark and was like, Grania, we've so many gooseberries in my friend's garden. Do you want them? And I was like, that's the flavor. That's it. I was like, yeah. that's it. My dad is going up. He's going to pick yeah. fruit from our, his friend's garden and we're going to make that into our chocolate. I was like, that's so me because that's what yeah, I do. That's what you do. And then I was like, I love a bit of floral flavor as well. Elderflower was in season when we were doing it. So we were like, Let's forage all the elderflower now. Have it ready to go for the show. And this is it. I was like, this is this is me. That's so me. gooseberry and elderflower yes. pink chocolate. Pink chocolate. Wow. Whoa. Fantastic. Yeah. Gooseberries are one of my favorite things in the world. Yeah, I'm and I think they're underutilized yeah. as well. So we had like even making the gooseberry jam <laughs> filling that's going on the inside. People get freaked mm. by gooseberries, you know, like I Because they're kind of prickly. But they're kind of prickly and like they they don't look they look uh, they look a bit like a ball. Like just <laughs> like I'm just gonna say it. Listen, I'm sorry if you're listening to this and you're like, just it, they do They have yeah, like a little shrecky ball. And <laughs> But like they are like there was a gooseberry bush in my granny's garden. It was always this thing where you'd run down, you pick a gooseberry, you'd eat it, and they're like they're kind of tart. They're but like a gooseberry jam, so mm. good. Oof. And even have you ever had the pink gooseberries, the ones yeah. that actually ripen completely, like mm-hmm. purple in color? Mm. They're delicious. They're yeah. amazing. They're not as sharp as the green versions. So there's two different like I'm sure there's probably more than two varieties, but there is so much flavor in them. They're fantastic ingredients, mm. and they're very a very Irish ingredients. So, and actually, that's like a flavor. Like when you think of kind of like gooseberries, that tartness, that sharpness, like gooseberries, buckthorn, like sea yes. buckthorn. Not yeah. like there's a lot of things that are kind of that, a little bit bitter. I think bitter. much I like think the Irish like people. That. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> moving on. Just what, okay. Just one last thing. I kind of like one more question. I kind of want to get to right. But like when you talk about Euro talks, right? Because like I, I actually like um, I was talking to Dan Hannigan about this, and uh, obviously like you know our good friend Dan, you know did uh, did, did didn't quite make the cuts. <laughs> was beaten by the better lady on the day. Uh, but like one thing that was that really stood out to me that he talked about was when you talked about your hot kitchen dish. And I believe like you'd done the chicken dish in the final. And it, like Kwanji Tan was helping out uh, at the time. And uh, Dan was telling me a story where Kwanji, Kwanji had tasted your dish and he walked over and he said to Dan and he whispered in his ear, he goes, you're in trouble. Just, <laughs> just, just for listeners who might not, Eurotuck is a, uh, the, it was the Young Chef of the Year, wasn't it? Yes. It's basically, it's a uh, national 
a cooking competition that is basically the finest young talent. Mm. And uh, so Dan Hannigan, who we mentioned, he's been a he's been a guest before. Dan, if yeah, you're we've had a, we talked about Mark Mariotti a minute ago. Yeah, Mark Mark, Mark well. was a winner. Yeah, yeah, um, and then he and went on to go win World Chef and all that. <laughs> <laughs> Show off. Um, so so did you are, like did you vibe off that? Like, are you a competitive person? So I am a competitive person. I have no problem saying that. But I also never want to embarrass myself. Yeah. So I actually entered the competition and I was like, I can I can play this up to my strength. I was like, if there's a mystery basket, I just make something sweet. And yeah. I was like, this is great. I'll just yeah. play it and see how far I go. But I didn't realize that if you get to the semifinal, there's a mystery basket, but they also tell you what the main ingredient has to be. Mm. So I had to do a crash course in meat fish and poultry and that was before the semi-final i had to get just do just enough that no matter what was on front of me that i was able to do it yeah ended up being monkfish on the day which was huge it still had its head on i stuck my fingers in its mouth its teeth cut my fingers <gasps> and it was a bit of drama but <laughs> got through it somehow got a dish presented up um got through that semi-final and then into the final and we had about two months we were given the brief just after the semi-final and we had about two months to prepare the dish and we knew how much time we had we had to do either a starter main course or main course dessert and the ingredients were for the main course it had to be regan's farm chicken mm -hmm. and dessert or starter had to be using a honey of your choice and um the village dairy jersey milk okay fab so i was like okay i was like i'm going to do a dessert for sure anyway but mm -hmm. it's not going to be your standard dessert it's going to be it's going to be simple um, but delicious because I was like, I need so much time to go into my chicken. Yeah. <laughs> and the chicken was the chicken was a challenge. So the first time I broke down the chicken, I think it took me 26 minutes because I'd never done it before in a professional kitchen. Yeah. Wow. On, on, <laughs> 26 minutes to break down a chicken. Yeah. No, but still, that's incredible. Like, it's like, this is. No, you, no, like, I wasn't yeah. like yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just got like, I like amazing that. Sorry, continue, please. But by the end, by the final, I could do it in six minutes and 25 seconds. Mm. Okay. Fat. So it's completely, I, I knew that that was going to slow me down. Yeah. So I had to keep going. I broke down so many chickens. <laughs> there was chickens everywhere. Feeding people chicken for <laughs> yeah. weeks on it. <laughs> but that's what I worked on. I was like, okay, I only have this amount of time. I have to use as many parts of the chickens as possible. And I had to do it in the time frame. So I just practiced and practiced mm. and practiced and practiced. And I knew then that I could do it in the time. And what was the dish you created out of chicken? So um, we had to use as many parts of the chicken as possible. So I did, firstly, I injected the chicken with chicken garum. Amazing. Ooh. So aged it for three days. We got it before the competition, so I aged it for three days. Then I used the thigh, so I barbecued that over turf. because The whole of my meal was inspired by my granny and how she would have eaten because she told me she was like the food doesn't taste how it used to taste when we used to cook it over turf fire mm. so i was like okay well what i was like Eurotox is all about preserving irish culinary heritage and i was like yeah that's the brief if even if they don't say that that's the brief that is of course the brief yeah. because that's what Eurotox stands for mm. so i wanted to tell the story through that so i did the the chicken thigh which was really really nice kind of smoky um and because the garum had had so much extra flavor going through i did turf baked potatoes so i got the the turf really really hot put the potatoes in into the oven let the place smoke up so bad but the flavor out of those potatoes yeah. was unbelievable yeah and then i mixed that through into a cali so cali is like a mashed potato from the west of ireland yeah it would have been served with onions and eggs okay so i did 
um, some raw pickled potatoes because the Irish laborers used to half cook their potatoes so they get a second release of energy throughout the day. So I was like, we've raw potatoes, we've cooked potatoes. Then we did deep fried... The science is creeping back in here. (laughs) (laughs) I can't help it. Deep fried um, onions to represent the onion and then egg yolk jam to go with it. Wow. So that was one part of the dish. I did a chicken skin waffle. So I made a waffle mix out of the chicken skin, toasted in a waffle maker. And then I did a chicken liver pate decorated with the herbs that the chickens eat so i got in touch with the chicken farm and i was like tell me all the herbs that the chicken eat so we had Sorry, just and you didn't know how to break down a chicken before you did this <laughs> <laughs> when you said you did a fundamental crash course <laughs> i was just, i think i had 26 elements in the entire dish wow. the entire things i had to prepare in two and a half hours wow um what else do we have we had more than that as well uh then we did um it was like a chicken soup that the chicken thigh went on top of. So I had a hot chicken consomme and a barley jelly. So when you pour it over the chicken consomme, it's it melted the barley jelly because wow. we would have had chicken soup that would have had barley in it generally mm-hmm. as, yeah. as more to add more substance. I had um, braised carrots, braised onions, and I feel like one other element must have been in there. That was the main course anyway. That sounds incredible. Who needs dessert? We've, we've, we've just had a massive lunch in Kai. And I, would, I, would, I would have three of yeah, those yeah, plates yeah. right now. Like, yeah. honestly, that is... Now I know why Dan lost. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Dan. Wow. That is... Do you know what? It's just like, it, it's amazing. The, the biggest thing that stood out to me about you in this kind of, in this chat is like, you're, you're just, your understanding of flavor. And yeah. like, as much as, you, you know, scientific and everything like that... Mm there's a keen there's a keen kind of burning understanding of things at a fundamental level there yeah, yeah. I love food yeah <laughs> but you really said you food. said you were quite an academic beforehand but I can see that I can see that's how you put that into food and you, you know you're passionate to learn about everything so then you know you're not you know there's nothing that surprises you like you know you know everything before it happens like so yeah. that, what you talked about there like you know when you're doing a bit when you're doing a pastry dish you'll know what goes wrong but if, if something goes wrong you, you'll be able to look back at it and I had a schedule on the day so no one <laughs> I don't think anyone else did but I had a list <laughs> of jobs and everybody i knew what time i was going in so if this wasn't done by this time i was running late mm. so i knew where i had to speed up okay yeah yeah i was just trying to think there but i thought i forgot <laughs> something i forgot to tell you about my dessert, my dessert as well but i had a list of every single element that had to be done the time it had to be done by and if i was running late i would know because i had a watch mm. on me and i was checking everything fab which was mental because it was the first time i did it under time mm. the dish every other time i'd gone over i did it five minutes under and okay, you brilliant. got penalized if you went overtime as well. So I was very lucky. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. And even like I had to have time to set the jelly. So I made like a carrageen mousse for yeah, dessert yeah, yeah. that was served at Sea Buckthorn, like yeah. you mentioned earlier. Mm. But I did seaweed twills throughout. So my mom foraged the seaweed for me because I was too busy at the time. So she went and got a sea lettuce and dulse. And we'd made candy chips out of those and oh did it God. in between layers of the carrageen pudding. So my mom, my granny would have said that mainly they would have had in the middle of the table a carrageen pudding it was the best dessert so because we had to use milk and honey mm, she's like yeah. and it used to be served beside a pot of honey fab and that was it that you was the nailed story. the brief but like <laughs> literally if, if you're listening if you're listening to this and you're saying oh my god Grania put in this level of of thought into into one chicken dish yeah Imagine how good the chocolates are go by the if chocolates. you're listening to this trust me you need these goddamn chocolates. Where can people buy, get their hands on raw chocolates this year for Christmas for people, for people they love? 
online on our website is probably the best option. So yeah. grawchocolates.com. Mm-hmm. And if you're in Dublin, Cork or Limerick, you can buy them in Brown Thomas stores. Exclusively in Brown Thomas yeah. stores. Exclusively <laughs> in Brown Thomas. <laughs> well, if you're in Galway, what are your favorite places in Galway, Grania? Oh, I had Rubin for lunch, which is always fantastic. Their sticky chicken, their Korean sticky chicken. Sticky chicken. Sticky chicky. Sticky chicky works. Sticky chicky. Sticky chicky does work. Kai, of course. Um, then we've Ain. I can't wait. I still haven't eaten yeah, there. Yeah, so Ain. that's where Christine Walsh is now, yes, is this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we've so many fantastic places. There's even like Tartar for lunch or uh, Anir, and then we've Loam. So we actually have so many up and coming places around mm. the city, mm. which um, I don't get in as much as I would love to, but I really love to get into the city and have delicious food. Any uh, Any exciting young talent we should be looking at for as well? Um, I think my own Andrew Ryan, who works at me, he is a fantastic, talented pastry chef. Um, Amazing. Incredible. And he's so passionate about what he does. He loves using local ingredients and we just click so well. So he is an absolute talent. So keep your eyes on him. Brilliant. Amazing. Andrew Ryan, shout out. Cronia yeah. Mullins, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, this is part one of the Galway special. Part one of the Galway special. Listen, if you want to keep up with uh, with Cronia Mullins or anything she's doing, just check her out on Instagram. Check out Grot Chocolates. Get them in Brent Thomas. Put them in a stocking. Receive kisses. And we've, said, we've also said it before. Grania did bring us gifts. Uh, so future guests, remember to bring us gifts. <laughs> we look for. Uh, you'll see. You'll see me eating some Grania chocolates on Instagram very soon. Keeping but uh, Grania Mullins, thank you very much. Thank you. Brilliant. Cheers. Spice Bags is a podcast about food in Ireland from an international perspective. Hi, I'm May. I'm an American food writer, and I'm with my friends Blanca, a chef from Spain, and Dee, an Irish food editrix. And we are the Spice Bags, three sassy ladies with a lot to dish up. Join us for the chats. For part two of this Galway special, we are joined by one of the pioneers of the Galway food scene. His restaurant, The Near, has held a Michelin star since 2012, and he's the man behind the annual symposium, Food on the Edge, a coming together of chefs to listen, talk, and debate about the future of food in our industry and on our planet. A global ambassador for modern Irish food, JP McMatten. Welcome to That's Banging. Thank you. You're very welcome. How are you getting on? Good, good. I just literally got back from, uh, from Brussels. Um, from the 50 best um, and uh, it was good uh, to be there and to meet a lot of different chefs and uh, I mean you've the world's it's like the, I suppose the equivalent of the Oscars yeah and well, it's good to have representation there from Ireland I guess what we were just talking about there that you know you uh, I suppose with with an air and with food on the edge you kind of became an ambassador for for the west of Ireland but now it's kind of become for Ireland for the whole country and going over to something like that and obviously representing Ireland and kind of, yeah, do, are people aware of what's going on here at the moment? I, I, was, I was actually talking to a journalist and I, I was um, an Irish journalist actually working in London. And I, we were talking about the Irish food scene and how it's changed in the last 20 years. And we, I still think Irish people haven't caught up with it yet. I think internationally, people were better recognized, whereas people internationally are changing their minds about Irish food. But I think people in Ireland still don't realize mm. um, the wealth of food that we have here. I mean, one good example is um, Anir was closed for 18 months and then we reopened in August and we're open 10 years. And we, we had so many people from Dublin who it was their first time in Anir. Mm-hmm. And that's 10 years later. Yeah. And I think it's because I suppose 
it's Irish people want the sun, they, so everyone goes south. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, we're just we're I suppose we're always looking for what's best elsewhere as opposed to what's yeah. best in our own country. Yeah. Is I, there a lot to do with I suppose Galway has came on so much in the last ten years? Like the food scene in Galway has came on so much, and a lot of that to do, to do with yourself as well. But I suppose like Galway has really became a destination for food in Ireland. So are you seeing that more and more as time progresses in the last couple of years? Like, oh, definitely. Um, I mean it, and it began a little. Um, when I, I suppose it began a little after the Anir got the star. And I mean, Argoy has always been like a tourist town, always. Mm. I mean, I worked in 1999 in Fat Freddy's and in a pizzeria, and there was always tourists. Like, uh, and I mean, but there were tourists that were passing through or occasionally eaten. They were still into food, mm. but I wouldn't say there was a kind of gastronomic scene. But definitely now, I mean, people come to whether it's like Anir, Blome, Kai. I mean, yeah. the men, and there's even more now, Lignum is like, so there's, there's more and more and more restaurants. Not to even mention our other two, but it's mm. and the people are coming to Galway to say, "Well, I'm going to dine here this night, here this yeah. night, and I'm going to stay the whole weekend." So you've mentioned your two restaurants. You've mentioned uh, kind of a little bit about food in the edge, or we did in the intro. For the people who might not know you, who are listening to the podcast, can you just start? Because we start. You mentioned that you were working in a pizzeria in 1999, yes. and here we are sitting. You're uh, you're the Eat Galway. Yeah, you have three amazing restaurants, a Michelin star since 2012. Um, so where did it all start for you? Uh, that is a very long question, or a long answer, and, a, um, and I'm, I, I don't even know an answer. Probably, I just put in uh, to even throw another uh, mix into the into the into the barrel. I just submitted my PhD in in food and drama. Fantastic. So, like, I would say I'm an accidental ambassador and a confused chef. Um, so, I mean, I've always loved cooking, and I've loved literature and the arts and theatre and and they were always i suppose mixed up for the last 20 years and uh we got when we got the opportunity in 2008 to open cava i mean we, we opened cava uh, we wanted to bring a kind of um tapas to galway and we traveled to spain and london to see the, the best tapas bars mm. and try to uh, i suppose learn from them and then in 2011 we opened an ear and our only i suppose ambition was to open a restaurant that um, uh, that could, I suppose, showcase contemporary Irish food. Mm. I mean, that was our that was what we did. It was a very simple restaurant. We had kind of bistro chairs and, like the the there was no goal to I suppose like attain a Michelin star. I mean, yeah. it wasn't even in our minds. Um, the Enda uh, who who's in Loam who has Loam now was yeah. was our head chef, and Enda had had a, a bib gourmand in Sheridan's, and I honestly thought if we got a bib that'd be great. Amazing. I mean, there was no stars in the west of Ireland or anything <laughs> yeah, like that yeah, yeah. and it was just so far off our radar and also because I mean I suppose we built the place with about 60,000 euro it yeah. wasn't that we invested 200 grand into a into a fine dining restaurant and said yeah. okay let's try and do this 100 euro plates beautiful crockery all of glasses. Um, and the the food festival happened the the year that we opened in year so we were I suppose Galway was starting to try to come together and I suppose between that um, then you're getting the star and then also the same year that we won the star I um, became a Fall Charlotte ambassador yeah. and I went to Canada and that 
the whole I suppose began the whole international travel promoting Ireland, going back to Galway, talking about the west of Ireland, then being invited somewhere else. I mean, one talk always leads to another. <laughs> yeah. You give yeah. a talk in Canada and then someone says, Oh, you should come over here for a talk. I didn't realise Irish food is X or Y and, and and it just kind of snowballed. And that's why I, I still I mean, I think I have the gift of the gab as many yeah. many <laughs> Irish people do. Yeah, and, yeah, and of I, course. I think that that's what happens. People just said, Oh, this guy can talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and, and he knows what he's saying Listen, and he's people passionate. love Irish people internationally like it, it, there's so many situations like you know I used to stand up but just get invited because you're an Irish person oh and, and then, yeah. yeah and then you curse on stage and they go that's alright that's alright yeah, right. he's, he's Irish. away with stuff he's Irish actually <laughs> he's, he's gas yeah and, and I, that's what I mean and mm. I, I've, I've been in so many different countries now and and still there it's it's um, I would say we're like I mean maybe halfway uh, towards mm like a, um, having a, a well-established food scene. Because yeah. I, I don't want to call it too early. I mean, yeah. I'm sure it opened, it got two stars straight away. I mean, that's amazing. Mm. But still, I think uh, trying to get the rest of the country to catch up, because to have a food scene, mm. it's not only about fine dining. Mm. It's yeah. about the whole culture of eating. Yeah. It's about like, yeah, I said you had Grogne making chocolates, selling chocolates, about yeah. people making great coffees, people well, like you, pastry, I, all of those things. This is something that really fascinates me. It's kind of, the 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 history of Irish food is that we have incredible producers. We almost kind of culturally and historically have this culture of food poverty, where it's almost there's a, you know, nobody was putting all these things together all, almost, and now there's this Irish culinary identity coming forward and this thing that's actually Irish food that you can see on a plate, and I think that's it's beautiful that that's coming forward. But it is like funnily enough, it's not coming out of Dublin. It's coming out of places like Galway. Yeah, no, and that's like it's true to a certain degree. And actually, someone told me recently that the the, the first mission star in Ireland was in um, Arbrutus in Cork, okay. um, mm-hmm. and so it wasn't in Dublin. So, mm. I mean, we do have a tendency to always look um, at Dublin. And it's not to say that there's there isn't um, there isn't uh, great food there, but I, I think that possibly all the different smaller restaurants that have gathered and and uh, I suppose attained glory in terms of Michelin are small independent chef run businesses yeah. and if you think of Robbie Krojcik or um, down down in um, uh, Bally de Harbour anything like that they're all examples of that but I also think in terms of like history and food I mean sometimes we're our own worst enemy in terms of in terms of trying to come together and I would I, I don't know why I was thinking about this in Belgium when I was over there, but I suppose one of the things, and I'm sure someone has said it before, is that like the the reason why the like we were colonized is that we like we we couldn't get it together to run ourselves, <laughs> and so and I'm talking about 800 years yeah, ago, yeah. and we were like taking lumps out of each other in like the four provinces beating the head off each other and then someone came in and said geez we could just take this place and i still think sometimes we're we're still at that kind of antagonism towards each other and that we can't kind of all just come together as an island and go this is what we should do and 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 like whether it's with food and say okay let's put a a, an agenda together for irish food as as a country a united front as opposed to loads of people like myself or Robbie, or Enda, or Jess saying, well, they're all private businesses. Yeah. And of course, when you look at it from the outside, but I suppose when I go to Copenhagen, mm. you see there is a collective enterprise there to make it the best food offering in the <clears> world. <throat> and 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 you can see that, and you will go around places. And unfortunately, we, we have that old kind of Irish kind of... Um, like uh, fuck the begrudgers. It's yes, like yeah. uh, your crabs, neighbor crabs in a bucket. You know and that? your yeah. neighbor is like, well, you know, hopefully he fucking closes. And uh, <laughs> as opposed to like, uh, well, let's all do well. And if yeah. we all do well, 
then it's a great thing, mm. you know, because I'm like, what a, a tide, riot, riot. A rising tide lifts our ships. Oh, that kind that's of, the one. That, that's kind of rack. I yeah. always forget it. Yeah. I was going about to say, about to say it wrong. <laughs> so but, when you were out in Copenhagen or when you're like, you know, when you're being this global ambassador for Irish food, when people ask you about the culinary di- identity of Ireland, like what, what are you describing to people outside of Ireland? What do you describe to people inside of Ireland when people kind of ask you about where where are we going in Ireland and what 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 is the, what, what should we be championing in Ireland? Like, I think that I always try and, uh, talk about Irish food from a from a very diverse uh, point of view in terms of like the differing offerings that we have and I mentioned like we have great fine dining restaurants with casual eateries we've got great takeaways and so for me like Irish food isn't just one thing and we're I, and I think we have to find our own identity rather than emulating something else and I probably learned that uh, through an ear and looking I suppose overtly at the Nordic food and then trying to say well I mean we have to start trying to shape things ourselves but for me like Miyazaki down in Cork is just as much or part of the Irish food scene mm. as, I'm at as, as in Baltimore like that yeah, kind of, all yeah. of that and yeah. so that that's the scene that we have so there's no point in saying Irish food is this or this is historically Irish therefore it's more Irish and we and that's why we have these problems and I was talking to this journalist about still like even though most of us like are not um, overtly religious anymore we still have this dividing line in terms of food history and like whether you grew up Catholic or Protestant and how much food you had and what your relationship was to the land and, and these all these things I discovered when I was writing the, the cookbook was that like it's amazing that depending on where you grew up you'd have a completely different identity you could have you could have grown up eating pigeon and deer and wild mushrooms yeah. Yeah. or you could have grown up in Dublin eating Rice Krispies and 7-Up and, mm-hmm. and, and I think we need to bring both sides together as opposed to saying well that one's not Irish because they were Anglo-Irish or they yeah. were British it all took place on the island of Ireland and for me then well so what's the culture of food on the island of Ireland as yeah. opposed to what is Irish food yeah you mentioned the cookbook there so I suppose like when you were writing the cookbook and when you were kind of like doing your not research but obviously putting the recipes that you knew for years and kind of putting that Irish cookbook feel to it like what was the thought process behind that like are you just are you trying to show Irish food to the nation are you trying to show it to the world and like what what, what were you what were you did you learn stuff when you were doing it yourself like the research for that no I, I learned I learned so much I suppose it, it being published by Fidon who are like uh, based in New York yeah. um, it was an international book aimed at the world okay and I suppose we've had so many cookbooks aimed at ourselves that when we publish food uh, cookbooks in Ireland they and they, the reach isn't beyond Ireland um, and I remember talking to Ross Lewis about this his great book from chapter one he mm. said he, well, he never got an American distributor so like it was known in Ireland maybe it'll be in England but beyond that yeah. no one got to see it and so it was a balance to be struck with with Fidon saying, well, they had a conception of what Irish food was, and I had one, and they were kind of and they kind of had to meet in the middle somewhere. Mm. I mean, I began it very much from the standpoint of an ear where we use only use Irish stuff, so we don't use peppers or lemons or all that crack. Yeah. And but then I gradually realized after writing about halfway through that a lot of the things that I that I that we don't use in an ear. Um, are 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 just as Irish as stuff that's been here. I don't know five thousand years. Like I mean, spices are a really good example because okay. they've been here a thousand years. So since the Normans. So if yeah. you take black pepper, cinnamon. Like cinnamon is not a spice you'd associate with Ireland. No, not at all. But yet everyone's grandmother would put it in carrot cake. Yeah. And yeah. so then you start questioning, like, well, what is Irishness? And then mm. the potato, which is from Peru. Peru, yeah. yeah. And then you just keep on going back, and then you realize that. Like, I suppose each time period has, has a different set of identities. And so you have, like, 
the very first people 10,000 years ago, then you have the first farmers, and then you've got like the Iron Age, and then you go up and you have the Vikings, you have Christian monks, and there's, there is there is similarities between them, but there's also, um, you could also carve out a little independent identity for each period. Yeah. And, and that was, and I suppose the most interesting one is badgers. Uh, and seals <laughs> and in in right. uh, we that we used to eat in the 12th century and i was not allowed to put a badger recipe yeah did you have much tussling with uh, over the badger <laughs> recipe with the well, fair I, publisher I, I wanted to put in a seal recipe because they still eat seal they in, still eat seal quite extensively in, in the likes of iceland and New, Falkland, Newfoundland. Or in, yeah. i had it in canada yeah. i had a seal flipper cooked in a pizza oven <laughs> oh that's um, and, and a yeah. guy in a pe- a, the guy talking to me was from newfoundland and yeah. i actually thought he was taking the piss on me because they have such mm. it's almost like tom yeah. cruise talking to you um in an irish the accent. accent yeah yeah he's yeah like, he was like do you want a bit of seal and i was like <laughs> are you taking the piss on me he's like no not at all i'm from newfoundland it's like are you gonna start singing kiss from rose like what's going i was on? like <laughs> I, we're actually good mates now but i was like so wait i ate this seal and i was like we could do a seal and chips and yeah. they were like yeah. no no and also puffin no, no. Uh, but we used to eat a lot of puffin. I, I've had puffin before. It's like I've, Iceland. It's, yeah, in Iceland. I, I've actually I, ha- I tried seal in I tried seal whale and puffin there in Iceland go. just because like do you know there's all kinds of ethical questions and people go mad and about eating these things. I think mm. do you know what I think there's a real disconnect in terms of what people see as acceptable to eat. Oh, you know? yes. like, I mean, if you can take if you can eat a cow, yeah, I mean, yeah. and then Pe- you can eat a seal. People will go and eat a giant basket of mm. chicken wings and yeah. commit chicken genocide without a second thought. Yeah. But you tell someone that you're having a fillet of puffin. And they, they are going to lose their minds. I, just put, I remember looking for a puffin uh, to, to cook and I put up a tweet and um, <laughs> the puffin didn't. The Irish yeah. Wildlife uh, Trust got back to me and said, no, you're not getting a puffin. Uh, it's illegal. <laughs> I was just I'm just looking for one. Um, but there are, there, look, a pigeon or sorry, a puffin is like a really cute pigeon. Yeah. yeah. That lives by the sea and has a really cute beak. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, and I'm not saying it's good or bad, but unfortunately, Pigeons, we eat. Wild duck, mm-hmm. we eat. And for some reason or other, we stopped eating them and they still continue in Iceland. But a yeah. lot of people uh, over the like 10,000 years of Irish history migrated to Iceland, mm. migrated to Newfoundland. And there could be legacies there that like we introduced yeah. the eating of, of, yeah. of seal to Newfoundland mm. or we introduced the eating of the puff. Faroe Isn't Islands. Isn't culinary, Irish, culinary yeah. culture such an interesting thing then? Like when you look at like, you know, why you eat something in one country and you don't eat it in another? Well, I think 100%. The, I think mm. the, whole, the whole idea of kind of, I suppose what's authentic to a country and what you were just talking about there, that when you think of like, you know, people might think of typically Irish ingredients and they're thinking potatoes and barley and stuff like that. And then you bring it back to the fact that yeah, a thousand years ago, why wouldn't there have been pepper like and there cinnamon? Was no, and, yeah. Like, even if you go back 10,000 years ago, there was no cows, no pigs, no sheep, no goats. So you had oysters, seaweed, wild game, or just birds and, uh, mm-hmm. and fish. And so, and, but then we can accept that. You can go, oh, yeah, that's Irish. Yeah. But then the funny thing is, as we got kind of into the book and writing it, and they'll say, do you know what? They said, it'd be good to put in some of your family's recipes. So I put in some carrot cake. Tick, etc. is Irish <laughs> uh, pudding, etc. is Irish. My father lasagna, that's not Irish. <laughs> and I was like, but he made it in the nineties. No, 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 that's for the Italian book. And I was like, but he made it. And I said, but that still tells a story. Yeah. But the way we actually eat lasagna, this is something. That, sorry, this is like something that I'm, I was chatting to someone about the other day. In Italy, like I went to Bologna a while ago, and you know, it's like it. You, you walk in, there's the nonna making the pass in the yeah, corner, yeah, yeah. and you get the lasagna, or you get the the tortellini, or anything like that. Whereas in Ireland, you walk into like a pub 
in Connemara somewhere and there'll be like lasagna coleslaw chips. Yeah, yeah we, this, we were talking about this. This ubiquitous, this ubiquitous trio that and garlic bread. I, and they don't exist. And the, 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 yeah. like the, 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 whether it's a beauty or a tragedy, that doesn't exist anywhere else. No. Mm. And so we, that is an Irish thing. Yeah. And yeah. we should accept, you can make the best lasagna in the world, the best chips and the best coleslaw and have a great meal. Yeah. And even funny enough last night, because I was with Sam Pellegrino, they're all Italians, they were giving out about people ordering cappuccinos because they don't, no one in Italy eats cappuccinos. I didn't yeah. even know this. And someone ordered a cappuccino and they were, they were like, listen, you, is, is, you is there only allowed one, uh, you don't need to order ca- uh, coffee with milk after 11 o'clock or something if like you that before them, 11 o'clock. Yeah. I was wondering why yeah. he kept saying, uh, he said he was mentioning after 12 or after 11. Yeah, yeah. And you almost happened to cappuccino and she was Belgian. She was, she was like, I don't give a yeah. fuck what you said. Yeah, the only, like, drink go, espr- go. the only drink espresso is <laughs> after lunchtime. And he, and he was like, don't look at me. You order yeah. cappuccino, he goes, I bet you eat lasagna as well. You want some garlic bread with that? And I was like, what's the story with like, because Irish people love cappuccinos and lasagna and actually we Coleslaw. Before we took our coffee machine out of an ear, people used to have the tasting menu and then go, I love mm. cappuccino. And I used to think, how can you have a cappuccino at the end of a tasting menu? Yeah. So, but do you know what? Like, interestingly enough, kind of looking at an ear and kind of it being a, I suppose, a, a, a cultural institution as much of a restaurant and being, you know, the home of this, this movement of the West Coast of Ireland. But then you look at kind of in terms of dishes that exist in one place or another, Supermax in Galway, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Supermax. The the taco chip yeah. right, is something, if you want to talk about Irish food, this is something that fascinates me. There's nothing about a taco chip that is in any way resembling a taco. But right? I, I, th- I, think, I think taco sauce was created by Abracababra. Like, no, I think so. You yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. So like, but, that, but another like Irish brand, like, you know. Yeah. But, and the funny thing is, and that's, that was supposed, that was my, I did get to mention it in the book occasionally, but I couldn't undermine the whole project. But I yeah. did mention at the end that there is no such thing as Irish food yeah. in, in the singular. You just have a load of diverse strands and you can write a history of the taco shell or the taco yeah. chip just as much as you can write the history of fine dining in an ear. And they're all going to coexist. And just because you want one more, if I want oysters and seaweed to be the kind of our archetypal things about Irishness, it's not going to stop someone going into super Having rice. a spice bag. Yeah. Or, or, a, yeah. or a chicken fillet roll <laughs> as, yeah. uh, and, or a breakfast roll, yeah. which is actually has an Irish... Uh, Whatever the I can't even remember the Irish for. They even translated into Irish for course. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, like something breakfast. Oh, breakfast, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, wow, it <laughs> must have been that important. In Connemara, they said we need an Irish name for that. Now it wasn't Pat Short. I translated enough. No, I'm not too sure. <laughs> could be, could be. But it's. I, I suppose you know the kind of the whole concept of authenticity and people kind of getting really caught up on that. It, it does hinder progress. Yeah, absolutely, and I think you have to. Like, I think you have to have. Um, ambitions for authenticity, but not let those ambitions cloud your judgment. And yeah. so in the same way, I can say like, okay, we're not going to use uh, peppers or lemons in a near. And that's not to say we won't ever. But at the same time, that's not to say that they can't be used. And for me to go on some puritanical rage and say to someone, don't be using that, it's not Irish or a lemon or like whatever else. And so I think that, uh, and that's why I, I really love um uh, uh, Miyazaki's food so much is that I think there's so many parallels between Japanese food and Irish food that just and also so many gaps where like they developed seaweed and, mm. and we and we didn't like they we have a crazy beef culture and they don't and they have more fish and mm. I just still think there's so much to learn between that but it's all about cross fertilization always you just you keep on keep on learning I think you know what's really interesting about Ireland I guess is the fact that we weren't almost allowed to develop a food culture. And that's something that really stands out when you talk about someone like like Takashi, who's yeah. 
one yeah. of the most incredible chefs in the country. Mm. For people that don't know, just like Takeshi is uh, Ichigo Ichi in Cork, um, and then he obviously has uh, Miyazaki's as well. Yeah. So doing amazing things with which Japanese food in Cork. Amazing, City. like it's just. But um, when you look at somewhere like Japan, which was you know a historical empirical yeah, kind of yeah. place that really did develop, and every place has its own cultural identity. Ireland, it was like you couldn't take something out of the ground, you couldn't fish something in the river, you couldn't have yeah. your own livestock. Like it was really, it was it was kind of this forced famine of culture really and kind of for now this mishmashed kind of thing to be coming out on the flip side of that wasn't like you know the french revolution happened and all the private chefs were basically thrown out into the proletariat <laughs> yeah, yeah. instead of being beheaded and you know restaurants popped up and you know suddenly you had antoine carême cooking in a little shed somewhere but you now it's like it's exactly what you were saying that irish food is is kind of having its moment now and developing in a very interesting non-linear way and like yeah and like we mentioned that the like the famine and um or the great hunger in irish as mm. everyone knows there was plenty of food you just couldn't there was yeah. no access to it mm. but like i suppose there's there is a there is a, a there's a tragic view that okay in the 19th century in france and italy and spain were building their empires and and england and they're building their food culture because that's really when food culture mm. blossoms is like 18th 19th century and we we were like in the depths of poverty and all that i mean the on the flip side you, the, the positive you can take out of that is that the irish diaspora that is around the world now that is coming back to ireland mm. May not may not be there if that didn't happen, yeah. and we could be in a whole other place. The fact that like there's 15 million Irish passports in the world, and we have five, and that's not even it's like 200 million people that that say that the declare claim Irish kind of the claim Irish heritage. Yeah. And so like when I when we launched the cookbook, and it was just just at the start start of COVID, so everything was kind of uh, dying down. But like we had a launch in Galway, and there was a few people there kind of celebrating. Glad launch in Dublin, less people, <laughs> and then went to Boston, and oh my god, it's like. It was in the JFK Museum and it was like about that thousand people. Yeah. And people were like going, like, I'm Irish. And I was like in a Boston accent. Yeah, and I yeah. didn't want to say, you're not. Yeah. I was like, of course you are. And everyone was like, yeah, fabulous. I love the country. And and so mm. I always think that the, the, the beauty of it now is that we just have to insert food into that experience because everyone has this image of Ireland. It, it, that it's a beautiful place mm. and and like whether or not that's true it's like when i invite chefs who have never heard of ireland uh, or never been to ireland they always go i heard it's a really nice place like mm. when mark best from australia yeah. when he said oh yeah i'd love to go to ireland mm. i heard it's really nice yeah and so we just have to for me we have to capitalize on that because we have the hospitality mm. you know and we have the crack and 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 you'd be amazed in places that you go where there is no crack, and you take the crack for for granted in Ireland because you're going, it's just fucking like people having crack and having. Well, and, you were just in Belgium. I mean, and, <laughs> and I swear to God, I, crack was a bit short on the ground. Like yeah. uh, I landed in Antwerp at twelve, and the only positive I could take out was that you could go into the shop and buy a can of beer, and I was like, oh, you can't do that in Ireland after half twelve. <laughs> yeah, but I was like, we have too much crack. I was like, <laughs> exactly, and I you was need to I, find the, a balance. The pub. There was no one in the yeah. pub. One lad. And I was like, all right, I'll just go to the hotel room. Whereas if you landed in the middle of Dublin, when, that, when the guys come mm -hmm. to Galway and they go straight into Nocton's, yeah. it's like, boom. And they yeah. go, oh my God, I'm here. You I've just landed. stand on Air Square <laughs> and you just, yeah. like, just follow your nose towards yeah. a pint. Like I know, I'm in Ireland. <laughs> and they go, I've arrived. And mm -hmm. can I come back next year? And can I come back the year after? Yeah. And so it, we, we've built up relationship with these chefs. And that's what, what's really important is that the whole idea behind Food in the Edge is that it's not just this annual symposium that brings all these chefs over. It's about bringing the chefs back. It's about people who've come to the event coming back and about building up this rapport that hopefully eventually will will equal like a greater food culture. So yeah. how did you actually start Food on the Edge? Like what was the, were you just sitting there and you went, you know what? 
I'm going to just get everyone here. I, it was something like that. I think <laughs> I was actually on a plane coming back from Charleston. I think uh, I was involved in this thing called Cook It Raw where they brought 20 chefs to... So that was Sean Brock. So, yeah, it was with Sean. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, uh, he let me drive his BMW and no I, I got in trouble. <laughs> I had never driven a car in the States. And I was like, I couldn't borrow your car. He was like, should I take it away? Mm. And I drove around the wood and... Uh, Charleston, Carolina. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so that's it's an amazing place. And they brought us over to showcase Charleston for 10 days. Mm. And I was there with the 20... Like, I was there, like, like there was amazing chefs there. And so I was there, God, these are here to see Charleston. And I was like, we have this stuff in Ireland. Yeah. And I yeah. was like, why, why is there no one bringing chefs of this caliber? And, and that was the first kind of inkling and then i said okay i'll start inviting different chefs and i, I literally just set up a twitter account and lied a little and said oh i've got the support <laughs> by the government and uh, i um, have lots of money uh, which had neither no money nor no support, support. The government at that stage and but like in fairness to uh, falch and board Bia, they got behind the 2015 and we flew in 50 chefs into galway and people were just still amazed even a week before people were going this isn't really happening is it well yeah. I've, I've had a look at some of your speakers like it's literally the the list of people that you're bringing there it is literally a, a who's who of like of, it's not just amazing chefs but it's minds as well as people mm. who are moving and even the format of it where it's it's not just like you know it's not a kind of a food festival where people yeah. are coming up and doing demos and all the kind of it's literally get up 15 minutes talk debate learn and that's like, there's not many people doing something like that. No, like, and actually one of the, one of, someone, um, when you're in the middle of it, it's hard to see sometimes what, what's happening. And so sometimes I even forget like what I'm doing it for. And, but actually one of the guys yesterday in, in Belgium actually said, mentioned that uniqueness in terms of like, there's no cooking. There is lots of food and it's a celebration. Yeah. There's no kind of dragging people to fine dining restaurants. I no. mean, that was never my issue. And people, I know some people said, oh, you should really be bringing them to the best place in Ireland. But I was like, I didn't want to give them a false impression. And it's not that that's a false impression, but I suppose I wanted to bring them here, show them the land. We bring them around on a on a Wednesday or Thursday of the of the week, and just 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 show them places, bring them out to the Iron Islands, and that, and they really they really enjoy it. But that the fact that there's no cooking, almost some of the chefs come and it's a break. They yeah. just have a talk. It's a holiday, and and. <laughs> As Matt Orlando said, um, he said, like, some of the best moments are the ones that you, uh, that you have in between the talks or the ones yeah. after the day mm. when you bump into some African chef. Yeah. And, he's, and then you start talking and all of a sudden there's a collaboration going on. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, like, there's so many things. Like, when you bring 50 people every year and saying that we bring people back, like, there's about 200 chefs have come or maybe 250. Mm, yeah. And they all, some of them know each other now. Yeah. And they've met. The connections Ireland. they make when they're there. And it all, and then the young, younger chefs who come and then they say, oh, do you know, I'd like to go work with Nathan Outlaw or I'd like to go here. And, mm. and then at least then they can contact me and I can go, yeah, I'll put you in touch. And it's just about building up a big network. That's yeah. all. No, I just think that the idea of someone like, say, Alex Atala and maybe like an Ethiopian chef yeah. standing on Inish Man. I know. Like I know. literally having a pint of Guinness and an oyster or a bit of crab or something like that. Yeah. Like when you actually, like, I'm fascinated by sentences that have never been said before, you know, me these too, kind of abstract yeah, ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if someone had said like 20 years ago, like, we're going to take <laughs> these two cultures, these two food identities, and we're going to mash them up. We're going to put them in Joe Watties. Yeah, having, yeah, having some. Yeah, having that, a. And and I was amazed when when the, the first year um, we had um, we had the after party in the Roisin and nobody knew any of the chefs. Yeah, and so someone tried to explain it and say, 
do you know like Messi and Ronaldo? <laughs> so the equivalent of having them in the Roshin Dove. Yeah. And he was like, all right, I'm not getting you. Yeah. And, and that, but that was one of the beautiful things that about Galway and about Ireland, that all these guys wandered around and no one even blinked an eye. And I mean, the only, it was the Polish chef that everyone recognized because there's so many Polish in Ireland. <laughs> and he is Poland's most famous chef. He's equivalent to Gordon Ramsay in Poland. And it wears these modest Amaro, wears these Harlequin pants. And so he was identifiable. And so many Polish people came up to him and said, what are you doing in Galway? And he's like, oh, there's this festival on. And yeah, that, and we had it in the comedy tent the first year, which yeah. is still everyone's favorite year. And if I could put it back in, in a tent like that or put it in a castle or, I mean, I'm always very romantic about these things. And I, like if I could put it on a cliff in, in our, in, on Aaron, it's just like the technology yeah. is not there. What's the name of that? It's like, the, it's an old, old fort that faces out to the oh, sea. Oh, Dunangus. If I could put it on there and like, but like there's no electricity. Yeah. Wind. We where we're going, we don't need yeah. electricity. Yeah. Okay. So that, yeah, that'd be, that'd mm. be well, absolutely great. Saying that now, you do have a beautiful location for it this year in Airfield Estates. Absolutely. Like, you know, I, I, I love that whole estate. Like, there's just, there's so much going on, but it's so beautiful. And, and you know, it's in it's in Dundrum. It's in, like, you know, it, you forget. It's a forgotten pocket, I think. Like, it's people forget that's there in Dublin. Yeah. Like, it's I didn't amazing. Even, I, my um, father grew up down the road in Stillorgan, and I never knew it was there. And then he said to me, oh, sure, we used to buy milk from the ladies that set that up. And I was like, you never told me that. And he's like, sure, why would I tell you? And <laughs> um, and so the it's, it's just, I think even the, given the time that we're in now and post pandemic the fact that it's on in an urban farm is mm. just says so much about the food's relationship to the city and and all of those things and so i was delighted with Gronya, who's the the ceo there who had actually been to all of the food in the edges i didn't even Brilliant. know that and mm. so we just started talking and then she said like how about trying to put it up here and so the intention is to put it is to hopefully keep it up there for for the next two or three years oh amazing. really amazing yeah well i suppose it, it takes a lot to move it yeah and i don't think if COVID hadn't have come along, even though the ambition was always there to move it, I don't think COVID, I don't think it would have moved. Yeah. Um, and it just, I suppose COVID gave us a break to to see what we could do and uh, and and I suppose things materialised. But I mean, I'd love to move it around Ireland and finally someday put it in a castle somewhere. The yeah. Rocket Castle, maybe. Is that, that free? That'd, be, that'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's just lights and deer and so, like just all those. <laughs> like, out of, out of, I know there's this kind of, there's a constant comparison between, you know, Nordic cuisine and I, kind of the emerging Irish cuisine and the food identity. Is there any other kind of food identity or culture in the world that you would love to collaborate with? That's been at Food on the Edge. Um, I suppose my other my other love is Spanish cuisine. Yeah. And, I, and I suppose I do I do go between the two because of cava, cava. and anir and of course. Um, and I and we have brought over a load of Spanish chefs. And I do think there is there is I think we have to find ourselves somewhere in between. Mm. That um, I don't think we can go full Nordic. It's just that we're not. We, we we aren't Scandinavia, no. you know, and we have we have in a relationship so with England, <laughs> and we don't cycle enough bicycles and have bicycle ways yeah. and all these things. Maybe someday we will, but I do think that Ireland's relationship to France, Italy, and Spain um, mm. is is very significant. And we and we brought over, I suppose, mostly French and, and Italian chefs, not, not sorry, Spanish and Italian chefs. Um, but I do think that kind of love of food. Uh, eating it, eating a small bits throughout the day, that, that kind of the cultural experience, the, the cultural experience of food in Spain for me is is is, is significant. That's why we opened the Spanish restaurant. Yeah, One was yeah. to eat 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 later, eat later, eat in small amounts, and just yeah grazing mm. and, and sharing and all that. And I think that's still a great idea. And so I think. 
but they're they're the two my two poles when I think about food. Mm. Yeah. Except I've been to Cava and then you don't eat little small bits. No, you, you, order, you, order to, four, well, you order 40 plates. <laughs> we have to make them bigger. I know it's like 13 years ago when we first opened and people were like going, listen, you're going to stay here. Your tapas are going to have to get bigger because <laughs> yeah. Irish people just did not do small tapas. But anyway, they kind of, uh, they, tr- they got translated somewhere in between. How was the, uh, the response from Galway to opening places like that? Because I mean, do you know what? I've always found that um, in Dublin, there was always, you know, people... You'd have your your kind of your people who've gone on the holidays and everything like that. Oh, tapas! Oh, wonderful! Yeah, let's yeah. go. Whereas, like, I found that like in Cork and Galway, it there there's always a certain amount of kind of like, what's this now? Do we yeah. trust it? Yeah, yeah. 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 I yeah. definitely took it. It took two years to get going. I mean, we opened two thousand and eight, which probably wasn't the best year to open a restaurant with the old recession. Yeah, and that. the old recession. But um, but it took two years, and we did have lots of people going. Where's my main course? Why don't I have a main course? It was like tapas. Why did this one come first? What do you mean? And like getting confused. And it took two years, and finally, uh, people got the whole thing. And yeah, like I mean, uh, Galway people love it, and Dublin people love it, and I suppose everyone who comes loves it. And it is like this monster of a restaurant now that mm. sometimes I wonder how it got to that point. Like yeah. it's yeah. the same as a kind of like it's like an institution of itself. Like, and when you meet people and they go, You're, "Are you your man who made the Bravas?" Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and that's what, like, and some guy. Introduced me to his mother once, going, Ma, this is the guy who made the Bravas. And he was like, Can I get, I don't even want the recipe. Can you just come make them? And I was like, <laughs> I was like, They're just fried potatoes with paprika. No, 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 no. Don't be simplifying them. I love, they're and, like the garlic fries from Supermax. That's <laughs> what I mean. And people ordering, uh, ordering Bravas. But like, even, yeah, even that, it's just funny when we first opened it, it took a while to get the, to get the Bravas right. But uh, it was just that I, I hopefully I'll remember for other things other than the guy that brought Bravas to Galway. That is, just, um, but like that, even that as a thing, be like, you know, you've had a mission served nigh on 10 years. It's just like the Bravas. It's like the they go, I like in here now, but I, I just, I prefer the Bravas. Um, and that's unfortunately, I actually joke about it now going, listen, look, if you want the Bravas, don't, I'm not going to get me. And I listen, when I want to, when I want to relax around food, I go to Cava and yeah. I think mean, food as like, I'm sure your, your listeners will know, like food, eating food is so psychological and like, it really depends on your mood. And like, you just like, there are restaurants you can go into every day. There are restaurants you can go into once a month, once a year. Yeah. And like, and it's not that some it's not that one restaurant is better than another. I always tell people like in Cava Tartar and Inir, it's all the same produce. Mm. They go through different lenses. Yeah. Okay. And, but at the same time, it's the same lamb from Connemara. It's the same meat. Um, the same fish and it really just depends on how you feel yeah. and yeah. I mean if, if I want to relax I'll go for a glass of wine and a meat and cheese board and cava you know mm-hmm. I don't think I could relax in an ear like it's like an intellectual kind of yeah. too, I, have to, I have to sit and think about experience the food. yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and you could do that once a year or you could do it twice a year but mm. like I just I couldn't go into an ear once a month because like I just I, it's, it's it's an not, intellectual exercise it's I mean, like going yeah. to the theatre like yeah, you know yeah. and, and you see a play and you go, a, mm. you're not going to go back the following night yeah. I mean maybe some people do yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, and God bless those people it's yeah, amazing yeah. But, <laughs> and watch it all over again there, are, there is a lot of theatre in fine dining but isn't there like, so, you know, much, mm. so much I, I've always said that fine dining is, um, is, is a kind of a blend obviously it's it's sustenance and it's nourishing but it, it's fine dining if you see it as just a meat and two veg meal 
you're going to miss out and you're going to hate it. It's yeah. uh, fine dining is a, a lens on the chef and where they come from. And, and that's it's, kinda... but it's a whole performance of like from the moment it starts and the sommelier and the wine and 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 talking and 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 interaction and all that has to be there. Like if you go for fine dining, if, as you said, fine dining, and it's just a meal. And, yeah. and there are places sometimes when you go and that's all you get, and then you think there's there's a loss there because yeah. for me, I want to have the crack with the customers and mm-hmm. say where are you from and oh that's why did you come here and and it, it is a nice. Uh, it's it's and you have time then because you can't do that in Cava because you've got a couple of hundred people coming to the door yeah. Bravas, yeah. and you don't get to say like <laughs> sorry where are you from Bravas. Uh, <laughs> it's just like I, I just love the the kind of, you know it's like you, you've talked extensively at seaweed as an agreement as an ingredient and kind of how you know the use of that and kind of foraged ingredients in and air and kind of and then on the other side it's just Bravas. And they go, don't like, put any seaweed in the Bravas. And I was like, I won't. I like, do they, people, do they, people say that? No, I, my, my own child has has told me I ruined the croissants because we've made a Dillis croissant. Yeah. And she's like, why did you ruin the croissant? And I was like, there's not, it's not, there's seaweed it's in it. It's delicious. Now. One she thing, was like, no. It's one not. thing that I really enjoyed over lockdown was actually watching you cook with your kids. Yeah, yeah actually, yeah. we had good crack. And actually, I had never cooked so much at home, like with the kids, actually, because the kids came, Heather was born when we opened Cava, Martha was born when we opened Denier. And then it was just like working all the time, working work and work and, and then sometimes on you have Sunday off you get a takeaway because the last thing you want to do is cook yeah exactly and so it was really nice baking yeah. bread and having the crack and, and actually as they say like you, unless you video something it doesn't happen <laughs> yeah. they said, what's the point in doing something unless you video it yeah. so we had a bit of crack because we were in the house every day yeah. saying let's make a video about cooking and so it was good yeah. and like I'm, I'm big into uh, food education for kids and trying to get the mm. like a subject in that's one another ambition of Food in the Edge is that someday hopefully we'll have some type of food subject for primary school you, or secondary school you were to writing about that recently wasn't yeah, it? That yeah. basically just a, not necessarily something as extensive as home act just a basic basic kitchen skills just that mm. or also food or even food history like it could be a subject that took in different and even learn about like well mm. why didn't we have a food culture in the 19th century and yeah. why did this happen and i know we cover some of these things and it, there's a load of things about resources and the parents should be cooking and all that but look at the end of the day like if, if you if you get to 17 and i meet so many 17 year olds and they don't know how to cook at all mm. like when you say can you make pasta and they go no no and <laughs> they can go, you boil a kettle <laughs> that, 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 that's like has a button yeah, yeah. and you go do you know how to boil water and they're going well, like a, you put the water on the thing, and you got to turn it on. Yeah, it? and you got to, talk, and they're like almost speaking to it like a foreign language. Yeah, yeah. And and then you go. Uh, there's actually we had we had some in mind the kids, and I was like, would you just throw a burger and a bit of pasta on with the kids? And I was like, how do you do that? I was like, you burger free uh, under the grill. And yeah. Like, and how do you know when it's done? I was like, it'll be browned. Yeah. <laughs> and I started like actually questioning how to articulate when something's done. I was like, you'll know. No, I don't know. But you know, I think one of the, like talking to friends of mine who aren't chefs or cooks or anything like that over lockdown, uh, who've, you know, maybe dipped the toe into the, the great culinary pool of learning yeah. how to cook. And how many of them can make really good stuff as long as there's a recipe in front of them and yeah, they follow yeah, the yeah. recipe to the letter. But they don't necessarily know how to cook. Like, the, and, and that's one of the things I think that people, I think that's, it's more important to actually know how to cook than to follow a recipe. Because yeah. if you can understand the basic principles of heating, using salt, like 
uh, putting uh, like whether it's acidity or all those different things, um, then I think you can cook from anything. You, you can, can cook give, any recipe. Yeah, then yeah. you give someone vegetables mm, yeah. and nuts and say, "Can you make me something?" Yeah. And then you just make something like a ready, steady cook. Yeah. And I think that's what we're missing, and and also just a few basics like how do you scramble an egg or something? Yeah. And like when you, if you meet someone that doesn't know how to scramble an egg, like that's a tragedy. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying they're like a four year old. <laughs> I'm saying if you meet an eighteen year old and they go, "No," but like um, how good? Like do you know that whole thing of being like you know Gordon Ramsay being like. When I get a new chef in my kitchen, I do they have to scramble an egg. I'm like, why are they applying for Gordon Ramsay's <laughs> restaurant if they can't scramble? Listen, egg? I, yeah, I haven't heard yeah. of that one, but it's a weird job application. But uh, yeah, but I don't yeah, care just, about your CV. Just scramble an egg. Scram- yeah, um, where's the butter? Uh, but it all of those, all of those things, and um, uh, like even just simple, like when I was here, we mentioned lasagna. Like every Irish per- Irish person should be able to make a lasagna, yeah. Yeah. and whether it's a vegetable lasagna. Or a, or a meat lasagna, or whether it's a fucking vegan lasagna. If it's just making it and putting it together and then going, I baked that and six of us sat down and we ate it. I and made then, the thing. Yeah. And actually made, and then actually ate it together as opposed to... With the coleslaw chips. With the coleslaw <laughs> chips. As opposed to microwaving a ready meal and yep. then sitting down and just eating it. And like the the consumption of ready meals has gone, has gone through the roof. Like mm-hmm. you now all the supermarkets are selling like ready-made dinners. Yeah. And if you, if you go through that for 20 years... Like say if you're all the I suppose techies in the world, and if they're like going, oh, it's just cheaper to get a two fifty chicken rice yeah. dish, mm. and then if you don't cook for twenty years, and then all of a sudden if you start cooking, like that's a problem. And it's not, I suppose, it's not so much an issue once or twice, or, or like, or for a small period of time. But when you're doing that regularly, and then four people in the house are going to go. Would you just microwave the chicken curry yeah. there? Yeah. Then I think you have an issue. And then you've all sorts of problems with, with health and food diseases and all that. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, do you know what? I, my, my housemate brought home a microwavable roast dinner recently. <laughs> I've never seen anything look more like an actual autopsy in my life. Oh, my God. This and thing was just like, it was it was vile Fold looking. it all together and then eat it and go, that's great. That's, that's, that's a great. Meat, potato, and two that's veg. That's a great pen. That's a, that's a, good, uh, that's a good, uh, good load of food in there. Yeah, yeah it's it well balanced. It was a nice balance. 890. It was 8.90. I wouldn't get in your restaurant, would I? <laughs> Someone actually said that to me once. They were they got a whole big massive takeaway carvery, and we're like eight ninety. Look at that! You wouldn't get that in your restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> and a big like mash and carrots and beef, and then covered in gravy. And they were like eight ninety, and I'm full. Uh, <laughs> I was full. <laughs> um, so, what do you think? Where where do you see Galway in ten years? Where do you see the West of Ireland? In 10 years, food-wise? I hope we have, I suppose, uh, more Michelin-starred restaurants. I hope we have more, I suppose, coffee shops. I think I'd like I'd like to see more integration between the different um, arts in terms of, like, there's so much great Irish design. Mm. And, and, like, even tables, plate work, all that. I still think we're, we're very, very young as a, as a culture. Because, like, and again, I hate Machen and Copenhagen all the time, but, like, the, they're the craft that, that they have. We have mm. that as well. And we have people coming out of colleges that make amazing ceramics, amazing tables. And I'd love to see that integrated. And I know like Kuhn Green uh, in, in Dublin, Kuhn is doing amazing work in Kuhn work in Noma. Yeah. And like he's trying to bring that together, like bringing craft, well, art. He's doing with almost just, it's beautiful. Yeah. Like, Absolute great. And showcasing everything from small producers to like woodworkers. Like, That's, like th- those wooden spoons he had on his, like go on Kuhn Green's Instagram if you're listening to this. It's just mm. Kuhn Green. Um, 
he's like the stuff that he's putting on there is just mm. and, and and I, I don't want to like I mean Coon's an amazing guy just in case I talk him up too much um, <laughs> but I, I was I was trying to explain this to someone the other day about about, our, about the process of Irish food and like there's there's many ways you can do it. but say for example if you took like level one like a near open 10 years ago mm-hmm. and then like level two for me would be like Amsher opening mm-hmm. and that's like two stars a lot of yeah. investment yeah. a lot of hard work and um, like you don't just get that and then for me like the third wave would be people like Coon, who haven't opened a restaurant yet, but will, and mm. when they get there, it's going to be fantastic. It will be yeah. incredible. And that's yeah. why I, I know that we're only halfway, or yeah. even only a third, like it's just, there, there is so much more to get there, and when we integrate produce and food, and then we look at craft, and then you look at the arts, and then, if, like, even, like, when you look at, like, theatres, you look at football stadiums, and all the food is shit, like, yeah. Yeah. and, like, that all needs to change, and, yeah. like, there's no reason why you can't go into Croke Park and get amazing food. And that's 80,000 people. But unfortunately, we're looking at the bottom line. And it's yeah. just like, how do we make as much money as possible? Mm. But we have to start somewhere. And if we can get food in there, and then we can get people changing their mind and eating well, then all of that's going to snowball. And, and hopefully, all of that will change and, uh, and we'll all have a, have a good time. You talked about uh, hopefully having more Michelin stars in Galway. So we obviously we have Anir and we have Loam. Like there's one of amazing restaurants like you're talking about them in Lignum and uh, Arbia. Like wh- <coughs> where else? Where else do you think uh, like you know deserves recognition in Galway right now? Like certainly Lignum. I mean, Michelin is a Michelin star is, is is a hard thing to to tie down and like the, the the unfortunately I think the more casual you are, the less likely you are to get it. I mean, we got a Bib Gourmand in Tartar and that wasn't even again on my radar. I mean, I'd love to see more Bib Gourmands. Yeah. Um, um, as I mean, Kai have one. I hope Ayn will will get a bit yeah, more. Yeah, looks incredible. Yeah. yeah, and she's she's an ama- amazing chef as well. So I and I think all that's that's almost third generation, you know, um, of of people and of people who have worked abroad come back and who are showcasing stuff. And there's more Irish guys out there now working away, and they're going to bring back stuff. And I think as they learn, they'll learn from the likes of Spain, the likes of um, uh, in Denmark and other Scandinavian countries. And I think as long as we keep that for a cross-fertilization open, I think we, we like nothing, nothing should stop us. You know, it's just mm. our own confidence. Mm. Marcus, I was going to say, do you want to, do you want to get into that topping? Yeah. So I think it's going to be pretty obvious uh, what, what it's going to be with food <laughs> on the edge lumen. But um, at the start of the entire podcast, we mentioned our fresh and tasty sponsor, Hop House 13. So in this section of the podcast, we're going to ask you, JP, what's hopping? So we want to celebrate one of the most vibrant and uh, local food experiences Ireland has to offer. So maybe tell us about something you're excited about. Uh, maybe something that's happening in the next two weeks in Airfield. Uh, maybe an amazing outdoor dining experience you've had recently. A new launch, a book, a project, anything like that. As a reminder, always drink responsibly. I suppose I could talk about Food in the Edge. Um, <laughs> ah, but I, I had some nice meals as well. Uh, but yeah, Food in the Edge, I suppose, is the, ne- is the next big thing. And we're in the middle of uh, planning it uh, as we speak and trying to finalize a, f- a few uh, few uh, new speakers. And uh, we only, we're only bringing 50% of the people this year, which is, I suppose, uh, um, a little bit of a dampener because the whole purpose of it is to bring people and yeah. to talk and all that. And but the other fifty percent will be virtual, like mm. online, and uh, like it's still good. But um, I suppose this year for me is about survival, yeah. And it's about um, uh, just getting ready for next year, yeah. and hopefully next year we can open. If someone's if someone's never been to Food in the Edge before, and they're got, you know they're thinking about going this year, what what do people expect when they come in? What 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 are you getting out of your ticket price? What are you going to get? What are you going to see? Marcus talked about it later on. You're going to have like fifteen minute chats from chefs, but like what what is the experience of Food on the Edge this year? So f- you can go for one day or two day, mm. and there is like full tickets student tickets 
um, all the all the the usual things. Um, there's the pilot hawks. Then there's uh, lunch. We're gonna have a big massive lunch. You can wander around the the gardens and um, meet the chefs. And then we also have like a an artisan village of of about forty Irish producers. Fabulous. So then meet all them. And like I would encourage like anyone in in the food industry, even if it's only tangential. Because if like if you're a basket maker and you want to say, well, why aren't my baskets being used in Irish restaurants? And like I always like it's sometimes it's really hard to find these people. And that's yeah. why I, I credit to Coon. Like it's yeah. it's hard because it's it's a different industry and sometimes they're just doing different stuff. And but even farmers, I'd love more farmers to come because we've such a division between farming and food in Ireland. And mm. we have like a minister for agriculture, but we don't have a minister for food. Yeah. So it's all like production, 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 production. And then what about consumption? Mm. And like I'd love to see a minister for food I'd love to see someone yeah. from the government come to food and would you edge. run yourself I you never know so I actually said that. <laughs> I said that to someone they said I said you know what I might run for president they said if you fucking run for president I'm going to kill you <laughs> yeah. and I was like I won't I well won't. listen I, that's very presidential you're already getting threats on your life you <laughs> <know>? <laughs> but actually you know um, the, the older I get I'm only 43 but I do sometimes think that the only way to achieve some of these things is possibly to get into politics and it's not that I mean, my grandmother was a she was from Bray and she was a diehard Fianna Fáil like Charlie took what he wanted no sorry, sorry Charlie took what he deserved and it's like if you built a country if you built a country you take what you deserve and and everything was grand up to Bertie and then she loved Bertie and then everything like went south after that she couldn't defend them but if you told her you were going to vote for the killer Sinn Féin she'd throw you out of the house she would get out get out of my house anyway so she was uh, she was part of Manana here and like the um, and there's a great picture of her in the 1940s with a beret looking like a one of the Hitler, like. I was going to say the Hitler youth but I was going to say uh, Che Guevara Shake like her. standing on a podium in Bray with like a couple of owl lads behind her and fair play to her like for like uh, for being a woman in the 1940s being a politician but um, I think yeah to try and resolve some of those issues around food and policy I think the only way sometimes is to is to is to get in there and change it directly but I mean that's also difficult and is it is it better to lobby on the outside yeah. and try and get change or is it better to go in and try and change it yourself you heard it here first JP yeah. McMahon <laughs> running for office president or minister for food right we're going to ask you one final question JP and then uh Basically, we'll, uh, we're going to wrap up this wonderful Galway special. Um, you've eaten all over the world. You've just gotten back from the top 50. Um, but we want to know a little bit about you and what your devil's dessert would be. So this this whole question right. came about when uh, Chris and I were having a couple of pints one night. We were talking about uh, you know death row meals and all that yeah, kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. And just out of nowhere, Chris turned to me and goes, the devil's dessert. I was like, <laughs> what are you talking about? He's like, you say it. And I was like, the devil's dessert. In a big deep voice and the, since then it's just been like you know the idea that you walk you wake up one day you open mm. the door the devil's there he's like oh you i don't know why he's cockney <laughs> but, <laughs> devil's always cockney yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, if you're irish <laughs> if you're um, but basically said so you can have any meal it can be any number of courses and it can be anywhere okay you, i know i am i'm a man of simple tastes and like it's gonna you know it's going to sound uh not not grandiose enough like i don't i don't have the starter off the top of my head but we'll go start a main course dessert okay the, the main course is going to be spaghetti bolognese, okay? Okay. And it, because I when I, I had spaghetti bolognese when I was 12 or 13 mm -hmm. in this restaurant in Tipperary, and I had like a, an epiphany about food. And I was like, and I remember my mother going, you're not going to eat that, don't be ordering it. <laughs> and everyone else had burgers and chips, and she was like, don't be ordering that. And so I ordered it, and I was like, wow. I was, I was just thinking like food could be something different. Like food, it was like, because my grandparents never ate pasta. Yeah. And so it was the first time I'd eaten pasta. And the second one, unfortunately, I'm, I'm showing my love now of uh, Italian food culture is uh, tiramisu. 
Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I like literally that would be the, I, I'd actually just order the whole thermos if it had to be the last one because I'm always like eating a bit going I have to stop eating this yeah. and I just like if it had to be the last meal give me the full thermos a good thermos ter- is do you know, actually thermos is one of those it's one of those that like when it's when it's good nothing can touch it. no like I'm genuinely so, kinda, but when it's bad that's yeah there are some is, rotten ones there's a lot of mediocre thermosu out there no no look someday I'll make thermosu for you and I make it every Christmas now I make it with the kids and I've even made the, the children friendly one because they don't want the coffee yeah. <laughs> and they don't, of course they don't want the alcohol uh, or maybe they do maybe they uh, do but um, bright water they just yeah. don't want the bitterness <laughs> yeah so uh, so but I just yeah and I don't know like if I had to go for a go for a quick starter I'd probably go to Spain and have a, a pan con tomate and a bit of tortilla That's sitting outside in the morning with a, an espresso just that'd be I think that I'd have maybe zip over to Italy like if there was the last meal just kind of but definitely uh, that was another time when I just uh, had one of those moments when in my early 20s going to Barcelona and saying oh my god for breakfast you can have like a pan con tomate and a tortilla and I remember having two of them and then it was like this is amazing having two <laughs> yeah. espressos and, and this is just pre late 90s before the whole espresso culture blew up in Ireland and I was just thinking God, this is absolutely fantastic yeah, yeah. And they're onto something here <laughs> yeah and that's what I mean in spite of all the different tastes and menus and I've eaten in the likes of Noma and all these and I still love them but I suppose food is very emotional yeah and at the same time the, I, my the youngest daughter loves spaghetti bolognese and sometimes it's just nice to sit down and eat the whole bolognese with her and like just beautiful yeah that's there it there you go that was beautiful I love that that's a perfect ending <laughs> yeah it was it, it was it was a real personal ending rather than kind of like you know people people come on and they talk about amazing restaurants in the world but like I love when someone says something like that and it's a real personal answer it's beautiful, it's beautiful. Pox, I was like I remember being in one of the 50 best and on the edge of a <laughs> cliff and I sucked a crab's yeah. toe that was the best thing I ever the had crab winked at me <laughs> yeah, while I did yeah, it yeah. he was alive they kept him alive yeah. who, um, <laughs> who, uh, who said a piece of toast again Neve Cullen <laughs> Neve Cullen yeah, she was just like I just have a piece of toast a really good piece of toast I'm like and you know what I can't really fault that no listen sometimes tea and toast is the Mm. only way a load of butter it's uh, the only way out of of a jam JP thank you very much pleasure it's been a pleasure uh, having yourself and uh, and Grania Mullins talking on this episode about everything that's going on in Galway and there's a hell of a lot going on in Galway. <laughs> in Galway. Um, and also, thank you very much to you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us today, folks. We're back next week with more tales and adventures of the Irish culinary landscape. And thank you to our wonderful sponsors, Hophouse 13. They're what's hopping. And where that's banging. Get the facts. Be drink aware and visit drinkaware.ie. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.